This coverage is live and uncensored, so if you have any small children present, you may want to have them leave the room. What's up, folks? It's Rich, My Take Radio, episode 84 for Thursday, March 24th, 2011. The intro music you just heard was Street Fighter II, Frets of Fury, and the artist was Vertex Guy. You can download that and any of the other previously used intro music from past episodes at ocremix.org. The letter O, the letter C, remix.org. The caller number is 347-324-3541. Again, that caller number is 347-324-3541. All right. Lots of stuff going on. My guest this evening is going to be Sirius XM Fight Club host, fighter, and columnist, R.J. Clifford. He should be joining me at 1130, and we're going to be discussing UFC 128, as well as the acquisition of Strike Force by Zufa. Zufa, of course, is the parent company of the UFC, Want to definitely pick his brain on that, and also on the events from UFC 128 this past weekend. Of course, John Bones Jones was crowned your new light heavyweight champion, and as such, many internet columnists decided to say that this was the second coming or the new generation of mixed martial artists. While I agree to some points, I definitely have my own opinion about it, which I'll discuss with RJ with RJ when he calls in at 11:30. So definitely be on the lookout for that. Um, Of course, let's get some housekeeping out of the way. A lot of great content is on MyTakeRadio.com. We got a new Miss Soapbox uh, from this past week's Monday Night Raw. Um, Also, we have her Soapbox for NXT. So definitely check those out. I know that they've been getting great traffic. There's actually also a comment on one of her Soapbox articles. I believe it's on NXT. Do yourselves a favor. Check out this talented young lady's work. Uh, She is very talented and very knowledgeable in regards to wrestling. I'm very happy to have her on staff. She is no joke, folks, no joke with that shit. So definitely check her out, show her a little love. Um, Of course, she comments on our Facebook fan page as well. So pop in there and let her know you're a fan of her work and um, continue to support her because she's starting out and she's getting her feet wet and there's going to be a ton of stuff coming from her in the near future. In addition to that, Slick's, Slick will also be having a Sucker Punch review tomorrow, probably tomorrow evening. He will be checking out Sucker Punch in IMAX. Slick will also be picking up a 3DS, so we may be getting an unboxing video and some initial impressions from Slick, so be on the lookout for that as well. If you've been on the fan page recently, you know that we are close to already 775 fans. Um, Definitely want to extend a warm welcome to all the new recruits. Thank you guys for following the show on Facebook, and definitely do yourselves a favor and check out our forums. It's mytakeradio.com slash forums. You can check that out as well, interact with some of the listeners, the MTR staff, and yours truly, of course. Um, Definitely 
stop in and register and interact. I mean, don't just live in the little safety net of Facebook. There's, you know, there's a lot going on in the forums. There's a lot of freedom there. So I, I really recommend you guys checking it out. I'm not even saying it because I want more people to join the forums. I just feel that um, the, the MTR fan base is very tight-knit. They have a lot of different interests, and I, it's just good to watch an exchange of ideas on, on a different medium besides Facebook. Not that I don't mind the interactions on the fan page, but the forum is a lot more accommodating. In addition to that, of course, check out the posts from our content partners, This Week in Wrestling and, of course, MMA Valor. I had the privilege of being on MMA Gospel last night with Josh from MMA Valor as part of their panel. Uh, we discussed UFC 128. If you want to check that out, head over to blogtalkradio.com slash MMA Gospel or check out their site at MMAGospel.com and you can hear my thoughts on the UFC 128 event. I will also be posting that episode on mytakeradio.com later on this evening or over the course of the weekend if you can't make it over to their Blog Talk Radio page. I've gotten a couple of questions regarding the My Take Radio store. Um, right now, most of the designs were being cleaned up. Definitely got to extend a great thank you to Nisi, um, one of the listeners of the show who helped clean up some of the designs. So you will be seeing the new and improved MTR designs coming up very soon. I am also speaking casually with Mist regarding doing some designs as well. Um, if we decide mm -hmm. to venture forth with that, you'll be seeing some really cool shit in the future. And, of course, our apps. You can get our My Take Radio app on iTunes and also in the Android Marketplace. You'll be able to get access to exclusive content, including the Minority Film Report, which Slick has been doing a bang-up job with as of late since I haven't had a chance to really sit down and watch any movies. Um, there is one movie that I posted on the Facebook fan page called Velocipaster, which is actually about a priest who turns into a velociraptor and eats drug dealers. Uh, the humor in that whole concept needs to be seen, so definitely do yourselves a favor and stop by the Facebook fan page and check it out. I guarantee that if that movie is released, I will find a way to do a minority film report with Slick because I think that's a definite two-person job for sure. All right, now with the housekeeping out of the way, here are some of tonight's topics. We're going to talk UFC 128. We're going to talk Monday Night Raw. We're also going to be talking some video game news. We got some sequel movie news. And, of course, our guest, RJ Clifford, who will be joining us at 1130. I'm actually going to go into MMA and get some of the stuff out of the way because I think a bulk of our conversation is going to go into UFC 128. So with that said, let's talk some MMA, shall we? All right. First off, of course, Dana White got to start with him. He's he's always in the beginning of most of our MMA news briefs. Uh, first off, he actually was interviewed recently by Mike Straka, and there were a couple of things that were brought up that definitely jumped out, uh, the first being now with the acquisition of Strike Force by Zufa, as well as the acquisition of the WN merger of the WEC plus the acquisition of Pride. There's always been a lot of speculation that the UFC may be expanding into having their own network 
which quite honestly I think would be very good for MMA fans. I, I honestly feel that right now MMA coverage is splintered, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because each presentation has uh, good and bad aspects to it. Of course, Bellator on MTV2, HDNet covers a bulk of really great MMA uh, promotions and also has the Inside MMA Fighting Words with Mike Straka and The Voice Versus, which this uh, this weekend, actually this Friday, you can see The Voice Versus with Michael Schiavello and Vanderlei Silva. If you have not had the opportunity to see that, I recommend if you have HDNet to check it out. Michael Schiavello is a great uh, color commentator, but not only that, he connects with the fighters on a completely different level, and he gives a lot of insight into their personalities and into what they're about. It's not just all about the fights, but just about the fighters as people. Um, I was very impressed with the voice versus the ream, which, of course, was Michael Schiavello and Alistair Overeem, so definitely do yourselves a favor and check that out. Um, like I said, regarding a UFC network, I think that the prospect of it is, is fantastic, and they have an ample tape library to do it. Dana White said, in regards to it, that it's a different world out there right now. Going out and starting your own channel isn't as easy as it was six or seven years ago. It's a lot tougher than it used to be, but it does make a lot of sense. When asked about a, the buzz for a particular network, he said Sports Business Journal just came out with a survey asking big names in the industry which sport could start its own network, and four out of five said us. They are right. I agree. That will happen within the next couple of years. Mike Straka asked a, a little bit more about what they're doing, and Dana White said, it makes me laugh sometimes when cruising through the Internet and I read some of the stories that some of the reporters write. Nobody knows what we're doing. We know what's going on. We're the ones that built this industry. We're the trailblazers that are out there making all these things happen. We know what we're doing. We know what the future is. We know what's going on. And it's funny to sit around and read some of the ideas that some of these websites throw out there. Trust me. We know exactly what we're doing for the next five years. Like I said, the concept of a, of a, of a UFC network or even an MMA network as a whole is very well done. And it should be something that, if done right, will not only allow smaller shows to get access, you know, even if they do want to bring in other organizations, but in addition to that, there's the concept of original programming. Um, you know, you have the UFC Insider. Um, you can also do the Ultimate Fighter specifically on a UFC-branded channel and also do a lot of the aftermath shows and the post-show recaps on a network. I think that the concept is, is is awesome. And, you know, WWE has always been on the verge of coming out with their own network as well, given their acquisitions of the ECW tape library, WCW, and, you know, various other smaller promotions over the years. I, I think that both organizations are thinking along the same lines in terms of expansion. Dana White is working on expanding the sport um, across the country and internationally. WWE is also doing that, expanding pro wrestling into other markets that are untapped and also embracing new mediums. One thing that I'm noticing with the UFC, they're actually putting a lot more focus on UFC.com and also on the UFC store. Um, no more, it was no more obvious that they were going in that direction than this past weekend with UFC 128 where when the fighters came out for the main event, they made sure to say that you can buy their shirts on UFC.com. And I found that to be very surprising, usually because that's something I hadn't seen in previous broadcasts, but also because the UFC is 
making sure that they have every avenue of their brand covered. It's it amuses me only because there's other you know MMA warehouse, uh, NJ Fight Shop, um, Fighter Superstore. There's tons of smaller companies out there that make their bread and butter selling T-shirts and selling merchandise. And in a way, it almost feels like the the like opening up a Target in an area of small businesses where you know eventually those small businesses will fold. I'm a little concerned about that just because there's a lot of great smaller niche sites that cater to MMA fans and provide some really great uh some really great deals on merchandise and it's not only one brand, you know, you have your tap out in there, you have your affliction, you have your bad boy fightwear, clinch, um venom fightwear, et cetera, et cetera. And the UFC seems to have love hate relationships with some with certain brands and those relationships, of course, will, won't allow certain merchandise to be sold in the UFC shop. And it's unfortunate. It really is unfortunate that that may be uh, a side effect towards UFC going into all these other smaller markets. In addition to that, of course, one thing I'm going to take out of the UFC 128 report is the loss of Mirko Krokop to um, our guest, the week past Brendan Schaub, who, of course, knocked out Krokop. And the big question is, oh, is Krokop going to retire? You know, Dana White has said that it's probably the last time you're seeing Krokop in the UFC. And, you know, I really am a little upset at a lot of the 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 MMA journalist communities going on record and saying, oh, you know, he's done, he should retire, blah, blah. Look. He did not look terrible in that fight. He wasn't outclassed. He actually was very competitive, and he just got caught. That's all it was. I mean, Brendan Schaub is a young dude. He's got a lot of power in his hands. It was almost a no-brainer that it was going to go that route. It was just a matter of when, but Mirko didn't look terrible. So the fact that people are, like, are calling for his retirement is stupid. If he's not going to continue with the UFC, that's great, you know, fine. But to, to write somebody off like that, it's just not not something as a fan that I like to do. I mean, yeah, there are certain guys, Tito Ortiz, I can say, Ken Shamrock, some of these guys that really shouldn't be fighting. But you know what? I'm not a fan that um, that's going to sit there and and make claims as to when these fighters should hang it up. It's it's sad that some some fans are very fickle. I mean, the pride fighting is legendary, it created a lot of legendary stars, some of which are household names that you know now. Without Pride Fighting, you wouldn't know about Fedor. You wouldn't know about Mirko, Vandalay, Rampage, um, the list goes on the Noguera brothers, et cetera, et cetera, Shogun. And to, to write some of these guys off after a one loss or a poor performance, it's just, it's just poor, poor form as a fan. I, I honestly think that they should, you know, people should, should be so quick to, to jump the gun and write so many of these guys off. Who knows? We may see Mirko fight in Japan or in, well, not in Japan for the time being, but we may see him involved in some K1 kickboxing. We may see him in, in Bellator or, you know, MFC. Uh, it's, it, it's just a sad thing that, that, that bums me out as a fan when, when so many people just sit there and write somebody off. He looked competitive in that fight, and it wasn't like he was outclassed. He just, you know, he got caught like anybody else. 
Another thing that's been making the rounds on Twitter and Dana White actually took the opportunity to address recently was the possibility of Vanderlei Silva fighting Chris Lieben. Um, initially, Vanderlei was supposed to be fighting Brian Stan, and he turned that fight down. Now it seems that they're looking at doing a rematch between Vitor Belfort and Vanderlei. Uh, Dana White said the following. We asked him to take the fight with Stan, and he turned it down. I don't like it because everybody likes this guy. That's kind of a weird philosophy, but I'll accept that. Vanderlei's a warrior. He always goes out there, so we offered him the Vitor fight. Now he's on Twitter lobbying to fight Chris Lieben. Dana White, of course, says, I don't want him to fight Chris Lieben. I want him to fight Vitor Belfort. Vitor has accepted the fight, wants the fight, and now we're fighting for Vanderlei to accept the fight. I think that uh, a fight with Vanderlei and Vitor will be really good, um, but a Vanderlei and Chris Lieben fight would be just as awesome. I mean, I, I take what I can get as a fan, but Vanderlei and Lieben needs to happen at some point just because it, it would be a fantastic fight, and it would definitely have a violent finish for somebody. I can guarantee you that. This coming Saturday, UFC has the Ultimate Fight Night 24. Uh, the main event is Little Nog. Um, Antonio Rogerio Nogueira, and he's fighting Mr. Wonderful Phil Davis. Um, they're actually going to be doing a 16-hour block of MMA programming on Spike TV. That's going to include 11 episodes of UFC Unleashed. You're also going to get the live airing and the instant replay of UFC Fight Night 24. And, those, and that coverage will be starting at noon, and it's going to end early Sunday morning. So if you haven't had the opportunity to catch up on some of the great UFC events, from this past year, do yourself a favor, check out UFC Unleashed, and 16 hours of MMA programming is not a bad thing, so if you're new to MMA and want to catch up, Saturday is the great time to do it, not only that, but you'll be able to see Ultimate uh, UFC Fight Night 24 also that evening, which actually has some really great fights on the card. you got Antonio Nogueira and Phil Davis, you got Dan Hardy and Anthony Rumble Johnson. Demarcus Johnson versus Amir Sadala, Leonard Garcia versus Nam Fan. That's going to be a rematch. He's stepping in for the injured uh, Chan Sung Jung. On Facebook, originally we were going to get two fights, but now we are getting five fights on Facebook, uh, like the UFC on Facebook, and you can see these fights. Alex Caceres and Mackin Semizer, John Madsen and Mike Russo, John Hathaway and Chris McRae, Edwin Figueroa and Michael McDonald. You'll also get Sean McCorkle and Christian Moorcraft. And on the prelims, you'll have Mario Miranda and Aaron Simpson, Johnny Hendricks and T.J. Waldberger and Nick Lentz and Waylon Lowe. So those are going to be the fights that you'll be treated to this coming Saturday. Like I said, if you like the UFC on Facebook, you'll be able to see five great fights. Of course, Alex Caceres from The Ultimate Fighter, uh, Bruce Leroy, for, for those of you that have watched The Ultimate Fighter recently, and Mack and Semizer is going to be a fantastic fight. Madsen and Russo, it has knockout of the night written all over it. And I'm actually looking forward to seeing this John Hathaway and Chris McRae fight. So, and, of course, I can't forget Sean McCorkle and Christian Moorcraft. All great fights on Facebook for free. Tito Ortiz, of course, like I said, was supposed to be main eventing this fight night. He was injured. U um, UFC actually said that, has announced, and Tito Ortiz has confirmed that he will be fighting Ryan Bader and that will happen at UFC 132. Dana White actually referenced that in an interview with ESPN, and he said, Tito lost his last fight and told me. He pleaded to me and Lorenzo about how nobody has beaten him up, that he can still do this. 
to give him another chance and this and that and everything else. We'll see what happens. And, of course, i got to credit the crew at MMA Weekly for posting that bit of news. I love Tito Ortiz. I'm a huge fan of his. Um, I honestly think that a fight with Bader is very, very dangerous. Bader came off a very competitive but um, very, you know, easily won fight by some people um, with John Bones Jones. And a fight with Tito, I definitely see it being a, 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 excuse me, I see it being a question of who's going to be the better wrestler and who's going to utilize the ground and pound the best. Of course, Tito is well known for um, ground and pound, especially for, from the guard position. So a fight with Bader on paper looks is going to be really exciting. But if Tito loses, this, this is it, man. I mean, Dana White's not going to give him another shot. And it's up to Tito to decide where he takes his career from here. I don't think Tito wants to leave the UFC at this point. And if he were to retire, I really would like to see him um, become involved in the business end of of dealing with the UFC. I think that Tito is a great ambassador for the sport. Um, He does great work with the press. And, you know, he can go out there and promote the sport in other avenues and in other venues. And he would be a great ambassador. I mean, Chuck is just as good, but... Tito's a name that everybody knows just the same. When, when you talk about the UFC, even to the most casual fans, you know, they'll mention Ken Shamrock, they'll mention Tito Ortiz, Chuck Liddell, and Randy Couture always. Occasionally you'll get a Dan Severn reference, but, you know, those are the four guys you hear about the most. And having them in the fold, helping to expand MMA and educate the masses on it would be really good to see. So I wish Tito the best of luck. And regardless of how it turns out, I'll, I'll still be a fan of his. Bellator Fighting Championships announced that their second-to-last show of the season, which is going to be Bellator 44, is going to be happening May 14th at Caesars in Atlantic City in Jersey. New Jersey, once again, continues to get more MMA events than New York City has gotten, obviously, because it hasn't been sanctioned. Uh, a lot of hate I have for New Jersey for getting so lucky with Strike Force, with the UFC, and now with Bellator so you'll be able to check that out May 14th in Atlantic City in Jersey. The event is going to have uh, middleweight champion Hector Lombard, and he's going to be fighting uh, Falonico Vital. And there's also going to be the finale for one of the four different season four tournaments. So keep an eye out for that May 14th. Regarding the regulation of MMA in New York, here's, here's something that just it, it really gets under my skin, a bill to regulate MMA passed through West Virginia's legislature, making the state the 45th out of 48 states that have regulatory bodies in the U.S. to approve mixed martial arts. Dana White, of course, made it a point to comment about it, and he said, we've worked hard to get the sport regulated all over the world, particularly in the U.S. I'm really excited to see the sport regulated in West Virginia and look forward to one day bringing a UFC event there. I'm I'm very excited, and again, uh, just a slight tinges of jealousy in regards to that just because we, we have the, the mecca here. We have Madison Square Garden. We also have other venues throughout New York State, including Nassau Coliseum, that can host MMA events, events from Bellator, events from, you know, no, not anymore, but events from Strikeforce and the UFC. And, and it bums me out that our politicians are so stupid um, that they won't, educate themselves on the sport, and they are quick to judge old footage instead of taking the opportunity and hearing 
Dana White and these guys, and he just hearing the impassioned pleas of some of the fighters and the fans, they're quick to, to toss out the fact that they can easily make $20 million for the state. But you know what? That's a rant I will save for later. Um, Slick just notified me that RJ is on the line, and I'm going to bring him on. RJ, what's going on? Hey, man. How you doing? Hey, dude. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks again. Anytime, my brother. All right. A um, couple of things first, just to give people uh, a little a little bit of background. You host actually two shows, if I'm correct. You have the SiriusXM Fight Club, but you also do um, a show for 710 ESPN in L.A., right? Correct. Yep. You would do, uh, do two of them, forcing my opinion on as many people as I can. There's no harm in that. I actually, you know, I try to catch him. I try to catch you on satellite radio when I can, and you call it like it is. There's no, you really don't, you're, you're unbiased. So that's one reason why I wanted to have you on. You don't have any agenda when it comes to the sport of mixed martial arts. So I got to definitely applaud you for that. Well, that's one of the beauties of, I guess, mixed martial arts in general, that it's still, I guess, quote-unquote fringe, where a lot of people in the media aren't really invested in one thing or the other. I mean, you have a lot of guys you know, working for ESPN or Fox Sports or wherever. And if you're talking about the NFL, the NBA, MLB, a lot of times, you know, the local market will be on that station. And so, therefore, you have to work, you know, you have to work a certain angle. But with mixed martial arts, I mean, you know, no one at ESPN or Sirius Radio benefits one dime from what the UFC does or anything else. So you're free to just kind of say whatever you want without uh, some program director telling you, no, 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 that's bad for business. So... It's uh, it, it's a blessing being able to cover mixed martial arts. Do you feel that the that the the openness of satellite radio in particular allows you to really give more of a of an unfiltered view of the sport? It's nice being able to to, to throw in the occasional f bomb if and when I please. But um, no, to be honest, my my ESPN show, my serious show, really doesn't. There's not that big of a difference between what I say content-wise. I mean, other than the fact that it's ESPN and they have certain standards as far as, you know, what you can talk about and what the words you can use. Other than that, it's basically the same. I mean, um, you know, how I view the sport is, is the same whether I'm on ESPN or on Sirius. Well, the, the, the funny thing is that you're, besides being involved on the radio side of things, you also are – that you also are involved with Tap Out Magazine, MMA Worldwide, and you also fought as well. Yeah, well, I'm, um, I used to be with Tap Out and MMA Worldwide Magazine. I now actually freelance for Fight Magazine. But, yeah, I'm, I'm an active fighter. My last fight was in June. I haven't fought in a while. I fought when uh, Strike Force came to L.A. on that Robbie Lawler Babalu card. So it's uh, I have a you know a unique perspective, I guess, being able to kind of look at it from a fighter's point of view, a media guy's point of view, and, um, you know, it adds a little bit more validity to what I'm talking about when guys know that I've been in there and kind of seen through the eyes of a fighter as well as just a media guy. Well, the the funny thing about that, and and I'm glad you know I'm glad we we can touch on that. Given given what's been going on lately, especially with with the climate of MMA changing, you know, Zufa acquiring Strike Force, trying to get sanctioning in New York, and just the mainstream appeal of the sport right now. Do you think that access to the fighters as well as you know, the the new mediums like Twitter and Facebook have allowed the sport to grow even faster, the accessibility being, you know, the, the, the main thing behind it? Well, mixed martial arts in general, ever since it kind of dawned, have, has always lived on the online. I mean, it's one of the few 
uh, probably the only major sports organization that kind of grew with the Internet age and the computer age. Um, and at the time, when, when the UFC and mixed martial arts in general was kind of cast away from mainstream media, that's the only place fans could go to find out about mixed martial arts and what happened. I mean, you know, SureDog back in the day was at every single event doing the best they can. That was the only place you could go for the longest time to find out what was happening in the world that's of mixed right. martial arts. So. Dana White and UFC have done a really good job in coordinating how they want their fighters to work with social media, working online, and no one does it better. I mean, you know, Dana White's million-something Twitter followers are a testament to that, and he was the first one to really, I won't say the first one, but when it comes to major sports, they really understood that there was a real intrinsic value to social to social networking and social marketing. There's a, there's a really good way to touch base with fans that um, – you know, traditional marketing couldn't really fill that gap. Well, the the best part that I like is the fact that the UFC doesn't need to rely on focus groups or polling five or six, you know, on you know people that aren't educated in mixed martial arts. They can just go to Twitter and people can say, hey, we're planning this fight. And before you know it, you know, half a million people can say, no, we don't like that fight, or no, this fight should be on TV. I mean, Dana White's going on record multiple times. Oh, man, you know, Twitter gave me a lot of shit for this fight, and, you know, we got to make it up to these guys, or this is the fight you guys are going to get since you wanted it so bad. Like, Phil Baroni, the Phil Baroni situation was a great example of that. Yeah, and, and in all fairness to the UFC business model, they still do plenty of polling and uh, surveys and things of that nature. Um, especially in regards to, you know, how in the UFC 130 coming up in, um, in, uh, at the Bell Center, they're actually moving the pay-per-view time back one hour. Here on the West Coast, it's starting at 6, and over on the East Coast, it's starting at 9. I mean, that was a result of months and months, almost a year of surveys and, uh, you know, research that they did to find out what fans really want. But you're right. As far as things like, you know, which, which fights are our fans just, you know, not happy with, you know, what venues do they want to go to, what places, you know, what uh, what fighters do they want to keep, what fighters do they want to go. You're right. I mean, uh, you, get, you get an instant reaction. If any time Dana White puts anything he wants on Twitter and he has any question with the fans, you know, you're damn well sure that they're going to respond. Well, one one particular thing that, that, that amused me but also I kind of cringed a little bit was when Fedor lost in um, against uh, Bigfoot Silva. And, you know, of course, Dana White tra- uh, tweeted his trademark smiley face, and the, the, the Twitterverse pretty much exploded. And um, he really went to war with a lot of fans just because, you know, of course, you had a lot of impassioned uh, Fedor fans that were not happy with Dana White, you know, tweeting the message he gave. Do you think that at, at that point it was almost like there was too much social media going on? Like, did that kind of not throw a black eye on the sport, but – kind of made people, you know, casual fans, like, wow, you know, the, the president of this company is a, a, a psycho. <laughs> well, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, when you have, you know, social media and you're in people's faces every which way you can, you're in their face for real. You know, you, you, you like to think you have the ability to control what you're giving the fans, but the reality is they see everything. And then, you know, all it takes is one tweet or, or one mention or, or one video blog against one sure dog reporter back in the day, which we saw, to get people to understand exactly, you know, sometimes what Dana White's intentions are and what kind of person he can be if provoked in a certain way. So, like I said, it's a double-edged sword. You you, you get what you get. I know that sounds very simple, but nope. when Dana White when Dana, when Dana White puts something out there, it's not always it's not always in his best interest if he's not thinking right. 
Oh, well, I, I always like to say, you know, not every not everything that comes out of his mouth is going to be roses, you know, and that in, in some ways, it's in some ways I really can appreciate that because it's like it's one of the few organizations where you can tell the president of the company, hey, you know, why, why are you shitting on my guy? And he can be like, because your guy sucks, you know, like even though, even though, you, you know, it bums you out hearing that, it, it really is refreshing that level of accessibility and it just gives you some insight into the fact that he, he, you know, he's president of a company, but he's still a fan, and he's watching these fights. Well, and also you have to take it, you have to be an educated follower as well. I mean, people who follow him on Twitter have to understand, you know, this is a business owner who has investments in certain fighters and certain companies, and, and he wants a specific result that benefits him. And as long as people understand that, there's really no harm in it. I mean, obviously anyone who understands mixed martial arts and what's going on knows that Dana White, would like to see Fedor fail. He was the, the, the golden goose of his largest competitor right. in North America. And, it's, it, and there's honestly nothing wrong with wanting him to, to, to see Fedor fail. It's standard issue business practice. And, um, you know, you're never going to hear the president of Coke say one good thing about any Pepsi product. I don't see anything wrong in Dana White wishing that Fedor failed and wish that he brought down Strikeforce with him. As long as fans understand that and there's an education on that, it's, it's, it's more entertainment than anything. Yeah, I, you know, uh, initially, and, and when I saw it, I was like, damn. Because, you know, there, there's, I, follow, I follow a lot of different members of MMA media. And, you know, you have your, your, your regular guys, your established guys, and then you got your guys that are just known, you know, on the underground, so to speak. And they were like, you know, what the fuck? And, you know, Dana White's like, well, you know, get off Fedor's nuts. And, and the fact that, you know, the president of the company is addressing them like, like, you know, like you and your buddy debating a fight was was amusing to me and I, I actually enjoyed that because it's true. It's like why would Fedor want to why would he want to see Fedor be successful if he's not in his company, especially with all his issues with M one. But you know, a lot of people didn't see it that way. I cringed only because, you know, so many so so many armchair quarterbacks and so many pundits would be like, you see, this is the type of thing that does is not going to get the sport sanctioned, yada yada. You know, you know the deal, especially when it comes to, to the press and and how they view things, especially with mixed martial arts. Well, I, I would take with a grain of salt Dana White's tweets and how it's going to be commissioned, how the sport's going to be viewed as a whole. I mean, you know, West Virginia just got passed recently. I mean, New York is, gonna, is going to be passed eventually, probably in 2012 at some point when they get that all squared away in Albany. But I, I really would take it with a grain of salt Dana White's kind of snippet comments and how the sport <laughs> as a whole is looked at. I mean... There's one thing to have, you know, his video blog that he had against Loretta Hunt that, that drew a lot of negative attention. And, and really, when you look at, you know, the major sports franchise, look at the Roger Goodell, you know, the, the, the president of the NFL, he carries himself in a specific way. He carries himself like yep. the CEO of a billion-dollar corporation, and, he, and, 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 and that's how you think he should act. Dana White doesn't act that way. He acts like just a, a regular Joe from Boston who – who says and who says what he thinks and he does what he wants, and that's kind of refreshing for a lot of fans, especially mixed martial arts fans, these and thirty-five year old males who are kind of sick and tired of kind of the old white guy with gray hair acting all the same in his suit. But at the same time, if they're going to take that next step, I mean, as big as the UFC is, they're still they still pale in comparison to the a lot of the mainstream sports media. I mean, people are saying how big the UFC is getting. The UFC makes in a week or two. Or excuse me. The UFC makes in a year what Nike makes in a week or two. I mean, that's what that's really to kind of wow. give you a, a, a point of reference of what the UFC is. The UFC is an incredible billion-dollar company. They're very, very successful. Their, their pay-per-view business model is the best in the world. 
but they still have a lot of hills to climb. They want to be the biggest four in the world, like Dana White says he does. Well, you know, you know, there's aspirations of of having MMA in the Olympics, which I actually would love to see at at some point. And of course, just sanctioning bodies throughout throughout the country. I mean, the the New York issue has bothered me in particular, obviously, because I'm a New York resident. But it's bothered me just because at the level that these politicians look at the sport where they don't do research. They look at it kind of with a broad stroke mentality, not realizing that, all right, you know, New York's economy is in the shitter. I can tell you that 100% there's service cuts across the board, and uh-huh. you're, you're basically throwing away 20, you know, 20 to $30 million of revenue. Why? Because you're not educated on the sport. Well, I, you know, I, I'm, I, I'm based out of California, and we've been regulated since 2006. But I can tell you, I am sick and tired of hearing about New York not being regulated. I mean, it's, it, it's been <laughs> it's dragged on for so long. Um, it, and you know what it is? It's not like it, – it's, it's really more politics than it is anything. It's not like there's yep. uh, New Yorkers with pickets protesting in front of the Capitol building. We don't want MMA. It's brutal. It's just simply the very slow reality of politics. I mean – uh, it, it's going to happen. New York will have mixed martial arts sanction. I believe it'll happen in 2012. But it, it, it's not like these guys aren't educated. It's just literally the pimple on the ass of all the problems that they have in the New York <laughs> State Legislature. It is it, there is so many bigger things to worry about that if they could really just if they really just focused on the issue of mixed martial arts, I'm sure they would regulate it tomorrow. But there's just so yep. many other things to worry about that it's, it's just not at the forefront. They have bigger things, bigger fish to fry. And they're going to take their time with something as minuscule to them as mixed martial arts. And as MMA fans, it just seems very frustrating to, that they don't understand. But they don't know what they don't know, and it's going to take time for them to do it. And I might as well sit here on the West Coast and let them take their time because <laughs> it, no, no, no amount of us bitching and moaning about it is going to turn things around over there. No, sir. No, sir. The only thing that's going to turn that around is going to be how many zeros are on a check. That's how I major, see it. major lobbying by Zufa is yep. really going to be Ma- the only thing that's going to make a big difference. Well, you know, in, in regards to that, of course, and I'll, I'll jump into that, especially, you know, you interviewed Brendan today as well. Um, overall, UFC 128 was a solid event from start to finish. How did you, you know, I just want to pick your brain on, on, a, on a couple of fights. Um, one, of course, was, was Mirko and Brendan. Um, how did you feel that, that so many people are, well, that, well, what are your thoughts on people just writing off Mirko saying that he's done, even though in my eyes he did look competitive in that fight? Well, he was competitive, and, but, I mean, he's a seasoned veteran with tons of experience who's won the Pride Grand Prix, held titles, and beat fantastic fighters, and yet he lost to uh, a 7-1 and Brandon Schaub. So to, to say he's done, I mean, that, that the word he's done is such a broad stroke. I mean, people have said that about Machida, that he's done as a top guy. People have said that about Tito's. People have used that word he's done in a lot of ways. Will, will, will Krokop ever hold a UFC heavyweight title? I doubt it. I, I, I don't think he will ever hold a major title ever again. Could he still be competitive and put on good fights on the biggest stage? Maybe. I mean, he did Saturday night. That was a fun fight to watch. I just don't see him beating a top 10, even top 15 heavyweight right now. But the good thing for going for Krokop is that of all the divisions in the UFC, heavyweight's one of the weakest. And if you're a guy, if you're a draw at the heavyweight division, you're still worth money to Zufa. You still, you still have a lot of equity as a product for Zufa. So 
to say he's done, no, I don't think he's going to be cut, but I think his days as a top 15 heavyweight are certainly over. See, that, see that's what I like to hear. What, what you just said was very refreshing because reading that, especially in that, that Sunday morning and, and late Monday, oh, you know, he's done, he should retire, oh, time to hang him up. And I'm like, he didn't get his ass beat. He got caught like anybody else. You know, he got caught with a solid, with a solid shot that, you know, can put anybody to sleep. And to write somebody off like that, I just, you know, I was bummed, especially with the career that he's had and, and, and the legacy behind him that people would be so quick to brush him off. Same thing like you were saying with Machida. Well, with Krokop especially, I mean, he's had some bad losses and some bad fights. I mean, his fight against Frank Mir was just atrocious to watch, and he got you know knocked yeah. out late in the third, and it was it was brutal to watch. I don't think this Brendan Schaub fight at UFC 128 is the best example of where Krokop's at. I mean, it, it was a semi-competitive fight against a pretty good guy in Schaub, a good up-and-comer, young guy, very athletic guy, and, and he hung in there more or less. He didn't look fantastic, but he hung in there and put up, put on a good fight. I, I think we've seen worse performances by Krokop, and even recently we've seen much, much worse performances from Krokop. This is actually yeah. one, even though he got knocked out, this is one of his better performances that made you kind of second-guess yourself and say, okay, he does big. And I was at UFC 128. I was in the stands, and I saw the Krokop flags, the Croatian flags, and, and all the fans cheering for him. So he is still a draw. And, as long, and, and the UFC understands that. You don't have to be one or two fights away from a world championship to, to, to be on a Zufa card and make a good mark. So I, he's not going to be cut. He's not done. But, again, he will never hold 12 pounds of gold around his waist for any major organization again. Do you think he may – well, I mean, you know, the whole – the K-1 situation is up in the air, especially with what's going on in Japan. Do you think he would he would find a better home going back to kickboxing, or do you think he should still stay in MMA and – to see if you know, and the UFC can still see if he's a draw. Well, I think he, I think he actually probably misses fighting in Japan because he got to fight the, you know, the the Mexican pro wrestlers and the, and the Japanese sumo wrestlers <laughs> in between. Yeah, in between actual real fights, I, I think he misses that. I, I think, you know, I think he's a competitor. I think he likes to be able to fight the the Fedors, the Josh Barnett's, the the Nogueras of his day. But I think he also likes collecting a paycheck for high-kicking some guy that doesn't belong in the, in the ring with him. So to think of him going back to Japan, it makes a lot of sense to me. I just don't think he can collect the paychecks he's getting in the UFC now in Japan. I, I think four or five years ago, it made perfect sense. Now, I just don't think there's money out there for him in, uh, in kickboxing. I, I really don't. Well, you know, I, I was, you know, like I said, I was bummed when he got knocked out because I actually – you know, I had I had Brendan on, and you know, I, I'm a fan of his. He he was a he was a great interview, and I said to myself, "Damn, my my heart tells me that Crow Cop should win." You know, but but the realist in me knows that Shab is going to take it to him. And damn, man, I was I I was heartbroken when I saw that knockout because it, it was vicious, and you know the way he landed, I was like, ah. Yeah, well, I actually had Shab on my serious show today, and and he was saying how you know. Croke up from that up kick. It was the illegal up kick when Schaub still had his knee down, uh, broke his nose, and, and that, that whole side of his face. He said Schaub said he couldn't see for two minutes after that strike, and which is why he was going for so many takedowns. So, um, you know, Schaub's a gamer. I mean, uh, it, it was good matchmaking on the UFC sport. He gets a, a credible win over a legendary fighter like Krokop, fresh off a win over a very tough opponent like Gabriel Gonzaga. So, 
what the UFC really needs is marketable heavyweights. A marketable heavyweight is the golden goose for mixed martial arts in the UFC specifically. And if they can pull one out with uh, with Brendan Schaub and keep it in fights like this for him, uh, they're going to have a very marketable guy in the future. Plus, you, uh, you know, he's a great interview, very personable guy, young, has a good look. He's uh, he, he's someone that the UFC can definitely use in the future. Yeah, I, you know, him, Matt Mitrione, you know, a lot a lot of this new crop of heavyweights that are coming in, you know, even even the the you know the guys like um, like Big Country, they're they're coming in and they're marketing themselves more on a personality standpoint and not just ability, which is good to see because you know a lot of people give the heavyweight division a lot of shit, you know, oh it's like watching molasses and paint dry, but you know you're getting a lot of fast, agile heavyweights that are that are bringing a lot of pop to the division. So definitely Shab Shab is a great find, and with the like- strike force of acquisition, you know. That that may also make the the talent pool a little deeper. Yeah, it's like you were saying with with, with good heavyweights, as the paychecks and uh, and the, uh, the the money goes up for mixed martial arts fighting, you're gonna find big heavyweight athletes. I mean, if you're a big athletic guy in America, you're not doing MMA. You're doing football. You're doing basketball. You're doing baseball. You're doing one of those million dollars. You're doing those sports where you can get a quarter of a billion dollars in a ten year contract in the MLB or something like that. But as the pay, uh, pay pay rises in mixed martial arts, you're going to find the big guys saying, all right, I was going to do football, but now I'm going to do MMA because there's money there for me. And we're starting to see that with guys like Mitch Rione and guys that have tried the NFL circuit. Right now we're just kind of getting the NFL rejects, but I think especially with this lockout coming up, we're going to see guys saying, hey, I like the spotlight of being the one guy. Instead of being just another, another guard on the offensive line for the Bengals, I can be a UFC heavyweight champion and have – the prestige that comes with it. We're going to start seeing a lot more of that as the pay goes up. Well, one thing I've noticed also is that it's opening the doors for a lot of collegiate level and collegiate level wrestlers that a lot of times, especially, you know, since we cover wrestling and I'm a wrestling fan also, you know, a lot of these college wrestlers end up being recruited and, you know, going the WWE route. And I've seen a lot of guys, Kurt Angle, even Brock Lesnar now, but, I've seen guys that have said that, hey, if I didn't do pro wrestling and, and MMA was around, I would have done it years ago. And I really appreciate the fact that there's another avenue for some of these guys because after, you know, if you do college wrestling, what else is there to do other than Olympic wrestling, either pro wrestling or, or at least now mixed martial arts. And like you said, it's a more viable opportunity for them. Yeah, and uh, and even if you go the Olympic route, I mean, Dan Henderson told me, obviously, he's a, a two-time Olympian for the U.S. in Greco-Roman wrestling. He was saying when he was uh, the number one guy in the U.S., an Olympic wrestler, he was making twenty, thirty grand a year. When he won that Rings King of Kings tournament, he made $120,000 just for winning that one tournament. And that was 10, 11 years ago. Imagine now the incentive for these wrestlers who have spent their whole lives doing a sport where they thought they weren't going to make a dime. I mean, I wrestle. I'm a wrestler. I wrestled in college. That's what got me into mixed martial arts. That's what got me fighting. I wrestled my entire life not thinking I was going to make a time on it just because I loved it. And the thing I can actually use my wrestling skills and pay some bills with it was beyond comprehension. That's what we were seeing. <laughs> Specifically, you know, this last weekend we had the NCAA National Tournament that just finished. Bubba Jenkins, yep. uh, a, a champion out of Arizona State, said explicitly, I am going to fight mixed martial arts when I'm done here. And you're, you're seeing at the Nationals, you're seeing just as many tap out, and Hitman and Silver Star Affliction shirts, as you see, you know, Asics and the Matt.com shirt. So the two the two cultures are, met, are melding beautifully, and it, doesn't, it only takes a couple guys like the Dan Henderson's, Randy Couture's, and Phil Davis's out there for these wrestlers that have basically been fighting just for books and tuition 
they think they can make a career of doing what they love. And, you know, the allure of championships and traveling the world, definitely, it's a great incentive. And and it's nice to see. I, I mean, I when I went into college, uh, I was a, a weightlifter in high school. I go into college. Oh, I go to weightlifting into college. And then after that, I was like, okay, what else am I going to do? So, you know, yeah. it, it's, it, it's really great to see others, other, you know, especially in wrestling, something else open up for those guys because there's a lot of talent. There's a lot of dedication and a lot of hard work that goes into wrestling. I've seen these guys that wrestle at the, at the high school and collegiate levels, man, and cutting weight alone is a, is a test in itself. Yeah, and it's nothing new that these that the high-level wrestlers get into mixed martial arts. I mean, that, this isn't a new phenomenon by any means, but it's just a lot more in your face. It's a lot more of the, the two cultures kind of melding melding together. I'm very I'm very excited at the prospect. Um, go, but last two uh, fights I want to pluck out of there a little bit. Uriah Faber and Eddie Wineland, of course. Wineland looked really good in that fight, and Faber came back and just unleashed some really great strikes. Now there's rumors that are saying that Faber and Dominic Cruz may coach the next season of the Ultimate Fighter. You being there, what did you think of the fight, and how did Faber look to you? I was very, very impressed with both fighters. I mean, Eddie Wineland's game plan in round one was flawless. I mean, what do you do with the Tasmanian Devil is you, you hog tie him up and not let him move around, and that's what Eddie Wineland did. He used his, 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 his height, his reach, and he, really, and, he, and he tied up Uriah Faber, clinched him up, put him against the cage, struck with him, tied him up again, didn't let Uriah Faber get really active, get into his scramble mode where he scores most of his points. Very, very impressed with Eddie Wineland in the first round. And, of course, Uriah Faber showing the championship-level fighter that he is in the second and third was able to adjust to that and come back. I remember specifically that last double-leg takedown Uriah got in the third, middle of the third round where he knew if he didn't get this takedown, there was a good chance he wasn't going to win this fight. And he just, he, he, he passed by that arm, he shot in the double, a second and third move, and he got Wineland down. And it was all technique, balls, and heart with that last takedown. And that's what sealed him the fight. So uh, props to Eddie Wineland being as young as he is. He's a charismatic guy with an exciting fighting style. He'll be around forever. But it, it was Uriah Faber's night, and rightfully so. I really liked his use of the short slams. You know, I definitely think that in the judges' eyes, that definitely scored some points because the judge is like, oh, man, you know, he's, he's slamming this guy at, at, at random here to, to try and break through his guard. So I was, I was very impressed with that. I mean, I've seen Uriah Faber fight, but, uh, you know, with Wineland, I was a little uncertain because, you know, Wineland's a tall, you know, he's got, some high, he's got a height advantage, he's got a reach advantage. And like you said, when he was bullying him in the first round, I was like, oh, man, there it goes. But Uriah Faber definitely came out swinging in the second and third, but he knows how to use those short slams, especially to, for, for, for scorecard fights. And that's what I was thinking going into the fight was, you know what, Wyman is a huge underdog. I don't think he should be as big of an underdog as he is. I really think that you know, Wyman's striking ability, he could have knocked out Uriah Faber any time. He has that ability to knock out just about any bantamweight at any time. But I thought to myself, you know what, Wyman's grappling versus Uriah's grappling. As soon as Uriah gets him down, which he will, he should be able to tap out Wineland fairly easily. And credit to Wineland. He did not even get close to any submissions by Faber. Uh, he held his own pretty well in defending takedowns. He actually won some of the clinch battles that he had with Faber. So I'm very, very impressed with how Wineland fought Faber. But, again, Faber showing the champion that he is, was able to gut it out, adjust, and get the two rounds to one. 
what do you think of the of the prospect of, of Faber and Cruz possibly hosting the Ultimate Fighter? You think that that would be uh, coaching the Ultimate Fighter? Sorry, do you think that they would? You know that that would be a great coming out party for the lighter weight for the lighter division, especially on on that type of a stage. I think that's an absolute no brainer. I mean, you have the most famous under 155 pound fighter in North America in Uriah Faber against the guy that he holds the only win over in Dominic Cruz. His only loss is to Uriah Faber, and he's the champion. So this is this will be for the championship. They'll be coaching guys at their own actual weight class. Again, like you said, this is the perfect platform to kind of bring the 35, 45-pounders into the mainstream in your, in your, you know, in your living rooms every, every week on cable TV. It seems like a no-brainer to me for the longest time until actually last week we got a call. from We, 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 got, a, we got a caller on my serious show who said, you know what, that sounds all well and good, but I think it would be stupid for the UFC to lose out on a John Jones Rashad Evans ultimate fighter coaching, and that got me. Oh, thinking. shit. I mean, I mean you can't right. even, yeah, it, it is Melrose Place all over again. You can't write, you can't yeah. script the drama that's going on there between those two and, and, you know, the history that they have and the fight that they're going through, and especially John Jones, who's going to be on Jay Leno tonight. Um, you know, he's going to be, uh, you know, all over the place as far as uh, a super marketable guy for the UFC. That makes absolute sense to me as well. So that's the only thing making me think, that it isn't turnkey for Faber Cruz to be the next coach of the Ultimate Fighter. You know you, you, that I hadn't even thought of that, man. And holy, holy shit, you just blew my mind with that. That would be, that would be <laughs> epic. That would be epic and on a ratings bonanza, especially because you know Rashad knows how to play, you know, the Ultimate Fighter game, so to speak. So he'll he'll take full advantage of of being on TV with Jones every week and just just try to dismantle him psychologically. You're right. That would make for some. Awkward, but really great television. And what do you do about the coaches? I mean, who's who's going to be the coaches for who? Is Rashad going to? I mean, is John Jones going to have Winkle John and Greg Jackson? Who, who's Rashad going to have? Are those are they going to split? Is Winkle John going to go with Jones and uh, Greg Jackson going to go with Rashad, or is Rashad going to go you know with the Grudge guys? I mean, I mean the, the the drama is the drama has built completely over the course of the media in just the last week. Imagine what would happen if it was week to week on the Ultimate Fighter. I mean. That is a storyline like that you can't even make up. It's like a bad divorce, like who who gets what kid, who gets visitation <laughs> rights, you know. And I and I feel bad. I I feel bad for Greg Jackson because he's like, look, man, they're grown ass men. I don't want to get involved, but you know what it is? You're gonna get dragged into it. There's no there's no escape for you. Yeah, it's it's the fact of the matter is it's a big money sport, and you know it was it was it was less than a year ago that John Jones was saying he wouldn't do he would never fight Rashad Evans he would fake an injury before he had to fight a teammate and i think a lot of people say that until the actual belt and dollar signs are waving in front of their face and they think you know what am i really going to turn down seven figures because i don't want to fight this guy and even though that's kind of the reoccurring role especially with you know aka has that same mentality um and team alpha male has has been saying the same thing as well until you're actually approached with that prospect, it's hard. It's easy to say no to hypothetical money. It's a lot harder to say no to concrete money. That you know, that is the that is the best rationale I've heard in a long time. Usually, I whenever I hear, oh, you know, I don't want to fight him. He's my training partner. He's my team. I go, look, MMA is not a team sport. A team sport. Suck it up. You know, but that your explanation spot on. You know, when you see that check, when they go, you're gonna make you know, $450,000 for fighting your teammate for this belt. There, there's, there, it's a no-brainer. Feed my family, 
or worry about rolling with this guy for another six months and making, you know, 150 grand or even less. You know, like you said, it's a no-brain concept. It's a no-brain concept for sure. Yeah, and that's what's been so fun to watch. I mean, it's, we haven't even begun to think about it. I've been on the radio for how long with you now? We haven't even talked about how good John Jones looked in his fight against Shogun. We're just talking about the drama unfolding between him and Rashad. It is just easy fodder for media to grab onto and for even mainstream media. I mean, uh, throw everything into the fact that John Jones foiled a robbery the, the, day yep. of, the, the day of a championship. He won a championship in spectacular fashion. He needs to fight his teammate. I mean, this is, this is, this is like Kung Fu, the legend continues, all rolled into one. It's, it's the perfect nice. storyline to sell this fight. I mean, that, they, that's why it was the perfect move to put Rashad in there in the cage, have those two square off, and you start seeing Rashad getting a little bit more snippy, a little bit more snippy with every interview. He's saying a little bit yep. more. God knows by the time these two guys fight, it's going to be a full-fledged war. Well, and, you know, a great setup for that with, with, the, with the Shogun and Jones fight. Of course, everybody knew that it was, you know, John Jones was going to use his reach, you know, his 84-inch reach. He was going to use his, his unique style of striking. Were you at all shocked, especially being there live, seeing Shogun just taken apart so methodically, especially a guy like Shogun who's a legend and very aggressive? I was surprised in how bad Shogun looked. I, th I would say that is more my, my, my good answer. As soon as I saw them get into the cage, the first thought in my head was, wow, they look like two different weight classes. John Jones just towered over Shogun Hua. And then I, when I recorded it at my house and I saw it uh, the, the following Monday when I got back home, it looked even worse. I mean, John Jones just towered over Shogun. And that, like you said, that 84-inch reach advantage, she just took the full, full advantage. She came out in the first four seconds and threw a flying knee at Shogun. I mean, that's what Shogun does to people. That's not what is done to Shogun. And it only took about three, three and a half minutes into that first round for Shogun to kind of be teetering around, breathing heavy, very flat-footed, almost like he's falling, going to fall over any second. That's, that's my biggest question to everyone all this week, and this is my question to you right now, Rich. Did John Jones look that good? Or did Shogun Hua look that bad? I think Hua looked bad. You know, I, I felt Hua looked bad only because I, I was watching his, his, his technique in terms of keeping him away. And, I, you know, I mentioned this when, when I was on MMA Gospel yesterday. You know, John Jones using, you know, Muay Thai Teep, keeping, keeping him away, you know, using, using strategies that Shogun should have been using in fighting a larger opponent. And I said to myself, is, is, is he injured? You know, is he not, is he just, you know, was his, was his will broken in those, in those first three and a half minutes? Like, you would think you're fighting a guy that big, you know, you try and work the leg kicks, and he only threw one or two and got taken down, and then he tried to go for the leg locks. And I was like, I don't know, something seemed, and, and you're right, something definitely seemed amiss. You know, it could have just been a bad layoff or a poor weight cut. Who knows, but something definitely was off. He looked like the guy who fought Forrest Griffin, but even worse than yep. that. I mean. He, I like to say, well, he had a knee surgery. It was a t over a 10-month layoff. That must be why. But he's had long layoffs and knee surgeries before and came back looking good and came back looking bad. I don't have a good answer. I haven't talked to Shogun's camp yet. I definitely want to. Uh, I'll let you know what they say when I know. But he, he looked pudgy. He looked slow. And he gassed out quickly. I mean, I don't know if that's a credit to John Jones with those body shots and the takedown and the ground and pound. Or if it was Shogun just coming in ill-prepared, or maybe a combination of the two. I don't know. The fact of the matter is, he took a world champion, the best 205-pounder in the world, and made him look like a girl. I mean, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. 
Well, you know what was funny? And looking at Shogun, he did look a little soft. I was like, I was like, you know, Shogun usually comes in a little bit more ripped for these fights. And, you know, I, I, you know at the weigh-ins, I was like, huh, you know, and it kind of raised a little bit of an eyebrow. But when you're, when you're, a, guy, when you're a fan of a guy like Shogun, you're like, ah, you know, he'll go in there and do what he's got to do. But the, mm-hmm. the most impressive thing to me was John Jones using more Muay Thai than, than wrestling on Shogun, which was ridiculous. He almost turned his style against him. Yeah, going in, honestly, my biggest question was, could John Jones hang on the ground with Shogun? I, I thought, um, obviously, Shogun has the ability to knock out anyone at any time. Like you mentioned, those leg kicks. He's a seasoned, you know, shootbox guy. He can go balls out standing, no problem. My biggest question was, I knew John Jones could take Shogun down anytime he wanted, but how would he do on the ground against Shogun? And and besides a couple half-assed triangle attempts in the first. John Jones owned him on the ground. I mean, he got into that half guard, let him speak ground and pound, he kept Shogun at bay. And that's what surprised me the most, was how Jones was able to stifle uh, one of the most underrated ground guys in Shogun and really take it to him. I was very, very... I don't know if that's a credit to just good game planning or if John Jones' jiu-jitsu and ground game is that good, but that's what surprised me the most, was how John Jones was able to just completely stifle Shogun offensively on the ground. Well, I was I was blown away when he went for the leg lock and missed going for the leg lock. He caught him in the face. I was like, oh, that had to hurt. <laughs> that was, yeah, I thought it, he, I thought it was a like, Yeah, and I was shocked he even went for it. You know, I didn't I didn't see John Jones going for you know a knee bar on someone like uh, Shogun who is that good at knee bars and leg locks and smishing game in general. So, um, prop, props to John Jones. He saw that it was late in the round. Might as well go for broke on a, on a, a high-risk move and see if he can get the win. And then he got that uh, that hammer fist, like you mentioned, right at the end. It was beautiful. The um the the one thing I I gotta I gotta ask is Jones and Rashad, of course, is going to be epic from the terms of fight build. But do you feel and and you know everybody's going on record saying, oh, you know, do you think that Rashad, given that he has a little bit more insight into Jones's training? Do you think he's one of the few guys right now in that 205 division that stands a chance of even beating Jones? This is a, a big topic of conversation I'm going to be talking about on my UFC show, which I actually got to pick off for in a couple of minutes. But th- that was a, a big topic of conversation. Who is the guy to beat John Jones? I mean, let me, let's be honest. John Jones, he hasn't, he, he's only had the title for less than a week. I mean, that belt still reeks of Shogun's cologne, and we're already talking about John Jones being unbeatable. <laughs> And so you, that was the big topic of conversation was who is one of the guys that could beat John Jones? And according to the odds makers, it's not Rashad who's already coming in like a five and a like something like a five 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 to one underdog, six to one underdog, something like that. And a lot of people are pointing the finger thinking it could be Phil Davis that could be the guy to beat him. A guy not now, he's still a lot got a lot of growing to do, but a guy that could take advantage of John Jones and get that takedown, maybe get a submission, who can match him athletically. I think that's the best bet. I mean, there's, there's a lot, some people are saying Machida because he has such a unique style. You have Rashad who's got the good wrestling and has insight on John Jones. Maybe Rampage because he punches so hard. It's really hard to tell who can exploit the holes of John Jones. Because let's be honest, we haven't seen any holes in John Jones' game yet. That's right. He hasn't. He hasn't been tested. I think the, the Rashad fight is going to be. We're going to find out how well he can hang. You know, I mean, if he comes in there and he dismantles Rashad, then then it, it definitely puts a question mark because, like you said, there's so many guys that have one or two particular tools that can do it, that can do the job. Yeah, and like I, I, we were talking about today on the Sirius show, the biggest weapon, the biggest plus 
for John Jones is that versatile offense. Like he can throw a spinning elbow, spinning back kicks. Uh, you know, he's throwing like that, that sidekick to the thigh that he was doing against Shogun. Beautiful stuff. But the high risk moves, the high reward moves come with a high risk. And someone that can time that can kind of uh, get get figure out when Jones is going to throw that big offense and counter with a takedown or some offense of their own is going to be the guy to going to be the guy to beat him. So it's going to be someone who's going to have to be very savvy about that and have the athletic ability to be able to take advantage of it. Shit, it's, it's going to be a great time to be an MMA fan. And um, I, I know you got to split. Um, last last question for you, Zufa acquiring Strike Force. How do you, how do you see it panning out for for the foreseeable future? Do you see any any changes, any subtle changes, or is it going to be something where they're just going to let it run its course for the next you know for the next two years that they're with Showtime and then come in and just revamp everything or you know merge with the UFC? Well, I definitely see them, quote unquote, business as usual. You know, I like to say it for until that Showtime contract runs out. I mean, Strikeforce has a contract with Showtime that doesn't change because the UFC purchased Strikeforce. They're gonna have to get give X number of fights for X number of years to Showtime. That's gonna happen under the Strikeforce banner, no doubt. With that said, I cannot see the UFC not tinkering with the Strikeforce product because let's be honest, production-wise and a lot of other ways. The UFC has the superior product. They've been putting on yes. MMA fights a lot longer. There's really no reason why. Because Strikeforce is basically the same thing. It's not like when the UFC bought Pride. Pride had different rules. You know, it was in a ring instead of a cage. It had different uh, production level. The atmosphere was very different in a, in a live aspect. It was Japan as opposed to North America. Basically, Strikeforce is the exact same thing as the UFC, just with a, with a smaller brand name. So why would the UFC continue to put on fights uh, under a brand name that doesn't have the same power as one they have? So I think Strikeforce is going to run its course. I think they're still going to put on their fights. Hopefully that, that heavyweight tournament is going to finish. And then as soon as the fighter contracts run out, they're going to be sifted in the UFC. And as soon as that Showtime contract ends, so does Strikeforce. We're going to have everything under the UFC banner. And that's great for the fans. We're finally going to get to see the Gilbert Melendez, Frankie Edgar, the Alistair Overeem, Cain Velasquez, the Nick Diaz, George St. Pierre, and those super fights everyone's hypothesized about it's going to come to reality. There you go. I got a one question from the chat that um, somebody asked. How how do you think Couture would do? Randy Couture would do against John Jones? <laughs> <laughs> does uh, does uh, I think John Jones would leave in handcuffs if that fight happened? Because what he would do to Randy Couture would be illegal. Oh shit! There you go. That's a that's a perfect way to close it out. You have any uh, any plugs you want to get out? Any any other places besides? Uh, Serious XM Fight Club that people can keep up with you, Twitter, Facebook. Yeah, um, you can check me out on 710 ESPN. I'm actually going to be on in two hours. If you want to, and you can find, I'll post the link on my Twitter. My Twitter is at RJ Clifford MMA. Check me out on uh, yeah Serious Radio on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays. Uh, 710 ESPN Thursday nights. Uh, Twitter at RJ Clifford MMA, and uh, I'm also a writer for Fight Magazine. So look for me in Fight Magazine every month. Awesome. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Listen, um, when when we go off, when you go off air, just um, email me that stuff because I like to do a write up with the guests, and I'll put all the links on the site as well. Will do, brother. Thanks a lot, man. I appreciate you coming on. Take care of yourself, man. I hope to have you back on soon. Anytime, man. I love coming on. Thanks. Thanks, brother. Later. Later. All right, that was R.J. Clifford. You can follow him on Twitter at R.J. Clifford. He also writes for Fight Magazine, SiriusXM, and also ESPN 710. 
Those links will be posted on the MTR wrap-up later on this evening or probably later tomorrow afternoon, and you'll be able to keep up with RJ there as well. Got to throw a quick shout-out. Thanks to RJ for coming on. And, of course, like I said, check him out on SiriusXM. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we're going to talk some wrestling right after this. You know those shows where they play video game music and they laugh in, like, really high voices like... (laughs) Well, you won't listen to that on our show because we don't have the budget for that kind of thing. We're broke as hell. And uh, nobody really cares that much to laugh that hard. So um, if you're looking for a show like that that has horrible audio quality and uh, void of fake laughter... Video Game News Radio, 11 p.m. Tuesday nights, on all games. Yes, sir, we promised you a great main event here tonight. Look at that here. Andre, the giant muscle radio. Everyone has a fight, friend. All right, let's talk some wrestling, shall we? Monday Night Raw, of course. We got one more Raw left till WrestleMania. Definitely trying to get as much shit in as they can. Some of it was questionable. Raw was decent. Um, of course, Monday Night Raw opens up with Michael Cole being a complete douche tape like he always is. Coming out dressed as JR in a fat suit with a bottle of barbecue sauce. Making fun of Jim Ross's voice issues, yada, yada, yada. Just Michael Cole being a complete ass bag. It was fine for what it was. It helped advance the angle. Moving on. Wouldn't be a Raw, especially in recent memory, without Triple H properly opening the show. He comes out as usual, starts cutting his little promo, talking about The Undertaker being 18-1. and one. He invites The Undertaker to come to Raw next week, which, of course, is a no-fucking-brainer that was going to happen because guess what? The last Raw before WrestleMania. Duh. Ted DiBiase Jr. comes out, talks a little shit, gets his ass whooped by Triple H. Easy peasy pedigree through the announce table. Ted DiBiase, dead ski. Moving on, John Cena, little plug that he'll be there via satellite. Of course, I'm, I'm assuming that the internet was a flutter with tons of jokes. Our first match of the evening was Evan Bourne and Sheamus. Of course, Nice little bit of storytelling there. Evan Bourne, of course, in his comeback, defeated Sheamus. Sheamus, of course, got his victory back by catching Bourne with the brogue kick. Sheamus talks, cuts a promo about being U.S. champion. Daniel Bryan comes out, asks for his rematch at WrestleMania. Daniel Bryan gets his ass whooped for his troubles, and Sheamus accepts. Maurice and Eve Torres, I actually expect it to be a real shitty match, and it was... It was passable, to say the least. Eve actually did win the match. Michael Cole decided to be a complete asshole and talk shit during the match, talking about his next guest uh, that's going to complain about, you know, in the angle with Lawler. I kind of, I, I like what they're doing with Cole's character with the build to WrestleMania, but it almost made it seem like it was amateur hour when the women's wrestlers were out there. They were like, oh, yeah, you know, you fucking suck blah, 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 get this over with, et cetera, et cetera. I think that in the interest of getting the angle over, they kind of they kind of shit on the women's division. Uh, Justin Gabriel and Heath Slater fought Santino and Kozlov. Uh, formulaic victory, total squash, 
from Gabriel and Slater, 450 splash on Kozlov to end things. Big Show and Kane came out, threw an ass whoop into the core. I'm assuming that at Mania somehow all of them are going to fight, whether it's a, a two-on-four or they're going to get two other wrestlers involved or eight-man tag, who knows, but they're already starting the subtle setup with that. One thing I got I really didn't like was that Kane and the Big Show have had long-standing issues, especially before the issues with the core, and then you just magically forget them and unite them against the common enemy in the core. Not a big fan of just conveniently erasing that shit. Uh, we got treated to a match with Ziggler and Morrison, which I was very impressed with, um, just because it ended up turning into a bit of a free-for-all, but the prospect of Ziggler and Morrison wrestling in one-on-one competition in the future is something I can look forward to. Both guys got a ton of talent, and they are definitely future stars. The angle advancement, of course, with Trish Stratus and Lay Cool for their match at WrestleMania was the big get. Um, Vicky Guerrero ended up pinning John Morrison after John Morrison caught a zigzag from Dolph Ziggler. Again, basic fluff to build up their match at WrestleMania, and I actually want to talk about an angle that was filmed for this week's Raw with Snooki that will continue to add fuel to that fire. Rey Mysterio and Randy Orton was your WrestleMania Rewind. Um, an, a solid match, and it ended... It, I actually chuckled quite a bit because CM Punk involved himself by appearing on the Titantron, telling Randy Orton he was going to visit Randy Orton's tour bus and introduce himself to Randy Orton's wife. Randy Orton, of course, runs out, ends up catching a, knee, uh, a wrench to the knee, which was pretty funny, just because CM Punk is such an asshole and he, he's such a great heel that right after that he ended up punting Randy Orton in the head and also throwing a kiss to Randy Orton's wife. Really, really great segment. I felt it, it showed that CM Punk does not need the nexus, and it also shows that Randy Orton is vulnerable and to not underestimate CM Punk. I really like the way it went, um, the, the build, the chase, Randy Orton playing the lunatic, and just CM Punk's promo work is beautiful. He is magnificent as a heel, and I was thoroughly, thoroughly impressed with the way it went down. So definitely props to them for doing something right. To close things out, of course, quick announcement that The Rock was going to be on Raw next week and also the face-off with Undertaker and Triple H. Alex Riley's there with The Miz and his segment about rewriting mystery. Uh, the big get from the segment was The Miz decided I'm going to turn the WWE logo upside down and it's going to be Mike Mazanin. How cute and original. This leads to John Cena appearing, quote-unquote, via satellite, which, of course, ends with it not being via satellite and John Cena actually being in the arena and proceeds to run out and try and whoop the Miz's ass. Like any other time that the Miz has had an altercation with John Cena, Alex Riley was the sacrificial lamb, and he ended up taking the brunt of the abuse. Nice way to close out Raw. The Miz didn't look weak in a beatdown with John Cena, showed that he was mentally one step ahead. Next week is guaranteed fireworks. You've got all three men involved, John Cena, The Rock, and The Miz. You've got The Undertaker and Triple H. It's going to be a huge ratings bonanza. Who knows? We may even get an appearance from Stone Cold Steve Austin, and we may even get another appearance by Trish Stratus, which 
and leads me to what happened. Yesterday it was reported that WWE shot an angle at Miami Mike's Sports Zone in East Hanover, New Jersey, and uh, Trish Stratus and, no- and Snooki were there, and Lay Cool, of course, show up. There was a bit of a brawl. Layla and Michelle McCool ended up going through a table. It was rumored that the shoot did have a little drama because the report time was 10 a.m., and Snooki arrived three hours late. They didn't actually get to shooting the angle until 3 o'clock, and the shoot, you know, and shot for nearly five hours. Allegedly, Snooki was drinking heavily that day and has been telling people that she is going to be a WWE diva full-time once the Jersey Shore is finished. So take that rumor for what it's worth. We'll see how the angle plays out on Monday. And that's actually going to be the end of the wrestling segment. Very short and sweet and to the point. I'm going to take another commercial break. We are going to talk video games right after this. What if it's on tonight even? Tonight at 10 on your local news. I said to Jesus, Jesus, can you say this is the deal of the century, people? I'm telling you. So, Jason, uh, what, what, I mean, what, what are we doing tonight tumbling with Tumbleweed Tuesday nights at 10 p.m.? BlogTalkRadio.com, Eastern Standard Time. Do you even know? Jason? Jason, are you there? All right, let's talk some video games. A couple of things. Um, If you happen to hear the clicking of my mouse, it is because of a couple of things. We are actually using brand new hardware this week on Blog Talk Radio. I am actually using an Alessis mixer along with a Yeti Pro microphone. So with that, there are a couple of little things that I cannot do anymore. In terms of using the mixer, I am having issues with muting the microphone. So if you do hear mouse clicks, I apologize, just because I'm still trying to find a good way to mute the microphone in between segments. On the bright side, though, it will be improving the overall presentation of the show. And not only that, but I also... I'm going to be able I'm going to be able to use the iPad as our soundboard from now on. So you'll be able to get better and clearer effects, uh, different music tracks, little things to just help the show out, make the show sound better for you guys, and not be so much at the mercy of Blog Talk Radio. So once I get all the bugs nipped nipped in the bud, so to speak, you won't be hearing mouse clicks and little things like that. But I wanted to share that with you guys just in case you're wondering. Uh, What are those little noises that I'm hearing in the background? Those, my friends, are mouse clicks as I am getting my notes and multiple screens working for the show. So I figured I would share that with you guys in the event that you are asking yourselves, what the fuck is he doing? All right, let's talk video games. Mass Effect 2, hot game. Everybody was playing it. Now collecting dust in a corner. But guess what? You got to take that dust off because there's downloadable content on the way. Arrival, which is the final bit of downloadable content, will be released on March 29th for $7. Uh, The content will have Commander Shepard sent to the edge of the galaxy to rescue an undercover operative who may have evidence of an imminent Reaper invasion. Red Faction and also... Jumped around, sorry about that. Admiral Hackett is also going to make an appearance in the content. So you'll be able to pick that up March 29th for 7 bucks. Red Faction is also getting some downloadable content, and that content is a few weeks away. Subtitled Battlegrounds 
The game will be released on the PlayStation Network on April 5th for $10. There's been no announcement yet for an Xbox 360 version, but odds are it'll probably be released the following day. The game is going to cost 10 bucks, but if you're a member of PlayStation Plus, you'll be able to get it for $0. Free. In some Batman Arkham City news, GameStop actually announced their first exclusive with a pre-order of Arkham City, and you'll be getting access to the Joker's Carnival Challenge map, which was similar to the Arkham Asylum map that's centered around the Scarecrow. Also announced is a combo pack from Best Buy, but as of this broadcast, there is no information available. In an effort to go green, it seems that EA is no longer going to include instruction manuals with their games. This trend started with Fight Night Champions and will continue with ongoing EA Sports titles. There are not going to be any more paper manuals inside the games. There's going to be an in-game tutorial. Uh, actually, with the inclusion of in-game tutorials, EA feels that paper manuals are no longer necessary and that it's environmentally friendly to no longer produce them. Instead, gamers can get a digital manual if they want one. EA is using this trend that was started by Ubisoft last year in order to cut costs. In some reboot news, Resident Evil Code Veronica and Resident Evil 4 will be getting the HD treatment. Famitsu actually reported recently that both games will be getting HD treatments for Xbox 360 and the PS3. Both games are going to be bundled in what's called a revival selection, and it's going to feature the HD upgrade. It's also going to have Ada Wong's Separate Ways scenario from Resident Evil 4. On the Capcom side of things, North America will be getting that as well. They announced that instead of it being available on disc like in Japan, both those games will be available as downloads on Xbox Live and the PlayStation Network. And last but not least, to close out the gaming news, Duke Nukem Forever, a game that many people have been looking forward to, has once again hit a delay. It's been delayed now, I believe, three times, and the newest delay has the game shipping June 14th to North America. Originally, it had been planned for release in May. I'm bummed, actually, about that just because the game looks so promising. There's so much great feedback for it, and to see it delayed another month, I'm hoping that the delays are worth the wait, and it's just going to be a fantastic title. We can only hope, shall we? All right. Once again, a short week with gaming news. I'm going to take another commercial break, and we got a nice bit of movie news right after this. The following advertisement is for BarnstubbornRadio.com. Barnstubborn Radio. We like news, we like current events, but we like the fucked up news and the fucked up current events. The Barnstubborn Radio, we talk about everything in entertainment. We talk about movies. We talk about music, mostly heavy stuff. Have good mosh pitting. And because we're big fucking nerds, we talk about video games. <laughs> we're big fucking nerds. We love video games. Fuck's sake, man. <laughs> Rich loves the show. Yeah. Hey, Rich, you like the show, don't you? Yeah, man. Are you sure you like the show? <laughs> yeah, man. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop the music. Isn't Born Southern Radio one of your favorite podcasts? Yeah, man. Awesome. Okay, hold on a second. But I was just curious. I'm thinking about coming to New York. Awesome. You live in New York, right? Yeah. You think maybe I could uh, crash on your couch? Uh, in the predominantly Asian neighborhoods, there's like fucking 20 of them shits. Um, Rich, I love you, but 
I don't know what the fuck he just said. In the Asian neighborhoods, there's like fucking 20 of them shit. Exactly. Okay, I, I don't know what Rich is thinking, but PornStuffingRadio.com is where you should be going right now. Here you get it! Have good much feeding! talk some movies, shall we? First off, in a nice bit of sequel news, Billy Bob Thornton, who obviously has jack shit going on, has decided to return to the Bad Santa franchise. The rap is reporting that Thornton is in negotiations to reprise his role for Bad Santa 2. A spokesman for the Weinstein Company said, we feel that it's a Christmas perennial favorite for the R-rated crowd. Everyone loves the character, and Billy Bob's excited to be in talks with us. That is fucking code for I am not doing shit else, and people like this movie so much that I might as well get a free paycheck out of it. That's what that is. Billy Bob Thornton's portrayal in Bad Santa was the equivalent of me driving to work every day, screaming at people that drive, on, that drive like shit on cell phones. That's all it was. I really don't think that it was a far stretch to play a belligerent, alcoholic, verbally abusive Santa Claus. I really don't. And the fact that there's going to be a sequel, of course there is. Why wouldn't there be? I mean, Bad Santa is a guilty pleasure. I actually watch it every Christmas. I enjoy the scenes with Thurman Merman in particular. So for me, it's something that I will end up watching. But if you expect people to go and pay $14 to watch this in a theater, you are high off your fucking ass. Straight to video? Sure. Cable? No problem. Box office draw? Not so fucking much. Speaking of box office draw, let's talk about the totals this week, shall we? In a bit of news that I was shocked to see, Rango actually was not number one again this week. Limitless took the top spot. The Bradley Cooper, Robert De Niro flick took the top spot, overperforming. It, um, they were predicting the film was going to make 10 to $15 million. It made $19 million and it had a budget of 27 So... Looks to probably going to break even within the coming weeks. Rango, on the other hand, dropped to number two, $15.3 million. Uh, the film has made $92.6 million domestically and $139.8 worldwide. The film had a budget of $135. We're well on our way to breaking even and starting to look profitable. So definitely props to Rango. Um, I do want to see it. Do I want to pay 20 bucks for it? Nope. I will wait. Battle Los Angeles, which was reviewed recently by Slick, you can check out his review on MyTakeRadio.com, dropped to number three in its second weekend with $14.6 million. It's a 59% drop. The film had a domestic total of $60.6 million and a worldwide total of 77.3. film had a budget of $70 million, so it is starting to be successful. The Lincoln Lawyer with the always impressively entertaining Matthew McConaughey, and I say that with the largest amount of sarcasm ever, um, opened with a $13.4 million opening. It had a budget of $40 million. The reason this movie didn't make any money was because Matthew McConaughey was not shirtless, because we obviously know that it's not a Matthew McConaughey movie without him accidentally ending up shirtless. 
When there were rumors of him playing Captain America, I said he's going to wear a mask, tights, and be shirtless and hold a shield. Why? Because it's in his fucking contract. But he's not aging so well, so he kind of had to keep his shirt on for this one. Simon Pegg and Nick Frost comedy Paul was number five at $13.2 million. The film has a budget of $40 million. I actually expected this movie to open up a lot higher, so I was definitely bummed to hear that. Uh, Red Riding Hood dropped to number six, $7.3 million. That's a 48% drop. The film has made $26 million on a $42 million budget. The Adjustment Bureau dropped to number seven, 72.6 worldwide, 48.8 domestically on a $62 million budget. Definitely profitable. Mars Needs Moms dropped to number eight, $5.3 million. Um, the movie is considered a bomb. It's made $15.4 million domestically and $17.5 million worldwide on a $150 million budget. So that is fucking stinkeroo written all over it. Beastly dropped three spots to number nine, $22.5 million off a $17 million budget. Definitely considered profitable, and I'm sure they will make money on the DVD and Blu-ray front as well. Hall Pass rounded things off, $2.6 million this weekend. It's made $39.6 million and $48.2 worldwide off a $36 million budget. I'd consider it moderately successful. In some other sequel news, Avatar 2 will be delayed due to the earthquake and tsunami in Japan. It has impacted filming, which was supposed to be starting soon, due to the fact that there are aftershocks uh, from the quake, and they are actually affecting where they're going to be filming. They're supposed to be filming the movie in... Shit, where the hell is it? They're supposed to be filming the movie in, a, in an undersea trench, and they're concerned about the safety of the cast and the crew, as well as the divers that are involved, and they're concerned also about insurance liability. So as of right now, they will be waiting until things settle down, but it's going to delay filming. And the trench where they were supposed to be shooting is the Mariana Trench. You can Wikipedia that if you want further information. But they will need to hold off on that, obviously, for the safety of the cast and crew. In some deadline news, and I actually wanted to elaborate on this article a little bit, and I'm sure that Slick will call in to give his two cents on it. The big screen version of Akira obviously is slowly picking up steam, and they already have a short list of actors and actresses being considered. Um, there's two parts to this story. I want to first go into the casting. Uh, right now, considered for the role of Tetsuo, the actors being considered are Robert Pattinson, Andrew Garfield, and James McAvoy. For the role of Kaneda, Garrett Hedlund, Michael Fassbender, Chris Pine, Justin Timberlake, and get this, Joaquin Phoenix have received the script. Obviously, Akira is based on anime artist Katsuhiro Otomo's six-volume graphic novel and is supposed to be filming in August. Here's the problem. Warner Brothers is being targeted for whitewashing the live-action Akira adaptation. A lot of people are complaining about the fact that there's not a single Asian movie actor in the movie. Gee, no wonder. It's being reported that the all-Caucasian cast is still being built and that Robert Pattinson is among those selected, but racebending.com, I haven't even heard of this site, it sounds like a porn site, racebending.com has learned about this and have started a petition directed at Warner Brothers. 
for their disproportionate casting and not using Asian or Asian-American actors. This website gained popularity after tossing similar complaints at the last airbender. You know, it, I, I can understand both sides of this argument. You know, you want to get good actors that can get people in seats. But it is true that if you're doing a movie based in Japan, built around a predominant Asian culture influenced by anime, that there is at least one or two Asians in the movie. Robert Pattinson is as Asian as I am white, which is zero. Neither is Andrew Garfield, neither is James McAvoy. And when we get into the subject of Canada, Garrett Hedlund, Michael Fassbender, are you fucking kidding me? Michael Fassbender, who is playing Magneto in X-Men First Class, think about that. Does he even resemble anything close to what Canada looks like from the anime? No. Neither does Chris Pine, neither does Justin Timberlake, and sure as fuck, neither does Joaquin Phoenix. So this whole whitewashing campaign that they're doing for this movie is definitely a, 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 a huge, huge wrinkle that a lot of people will be bitching about. And you know what? This goes back to what they were saying, and Dark Helmet made a great reference in the chat to the Street Fighter Legend of Chun-Li film. Same deal. Same deal with Dragon Ball Z. You take all this Japanimation source material, Japanese source material, and you whitewash it. And it's unfortunate because I'm sure that there are plenty of credible Asian and Asian-American actors out there that can probably do a really good job in these roles. I can understand in, in certain situations where you can't find an Asian actor to do the role or you want to try and do something a little different, but the fact that in that casting that I mentioned, there's not one, one single Asian-American actor. What about Rick Yoon? You know, we can, we can talk about him. Um, the guy from Fast and the Furious, I don't even have his, his name in front of me. You know, but Rick Yoon is one. You can, you can go down a list of Asian-American actors and actresses that you can put in this movie. Devin Aoki is as Asian as they get. Why is she not rumored to be in this movie? Et cetera, et cetera. It's unfortunate and it's sad that you can take a, a, a movie so beloved like Akira and whitewash it completely, and most people don't have jack shit to say about it. It's, it's really unfortunate. And I can see if you want to add your name to the petition, you can head over to racebending.com, R-A-C-E-B-E-N-D-I-N-G.com, and you too can sign up for the petition. I see... I see that petition gaining a lot of steam, and we may actually start seeing some casting changes sooner rather than later, especially when more people start voicing their displeasure at this particular bit of casting news. Resident Evil 5 is inevitable. Sienna Gilroy actually confirmed via her Twitter that she will be back for the next Resident Evil to reprise her role as Jill Valentine. So Resident Evil you can expect in 2012. In some other remake news, Total Recall, which I've talked about on previous episodes of MTR, is, of course, getting a reboot. Colin Farrell will be playing the lead, and there is actual casting now underway for the two lead characters, the character of Lori and the character of Melina, who were played by Sharon Stone and Rachel Tocotin in the original film. Um, I see that Slick is on the line. I was not sure if he had heard that I had wanted his take on it, but let's bring him on. Here come the Blake, what's going on? What's up, man? 
So let's talk about whitewashing Akira, shall we? Because I know you have a, a, a huge amount of disgust at what I just said regarding that. The first thing I want to know is, why the fuck is Justin Timberlake in every movie now? I got a lot of love for Justin Timberlake, but I love Justin Timberlake when he's on stage shaking his fucking ass talking about bringing sexy back. Not too much when he's on the fucking screen. Well, I think after the social network, it was almost a coming out party for him in terms of him being a legit actor. I mean, you know, he's doing a lot of comedies, et cetera, et cetera. So him building screen, screen cred and building his portfolio, I can accept but not in terms of a movie that is, for all intents and purposes, strictly Japanese. The only only thing that I can say in defense of that shit is that, I don't know, at that time, anime characters didn't, didn't exactly look like completely Asian. True. So that's the only thing that works with that, but, you know, it's, it's still anime. It's, it's still, still anime, and it's, it's taking still place in Tokyo. It's in Neo-Tokyo. Right. So the how do you get away is, with a, a bunch of white people running around in Japan? I don't know. Look, I can I can understand if you... Like, all right, let, going down the list, Robert Pattinson... Okay, young guy, you can kind of get away with it a little bit. Andrew Garfield, kind of young, you can get away with it. When you start talking about Joaquin Phoenix, James McAvoy, and Michael Fassbender in these roles, it, it just, it just, I'm like, what the fuck are they doing? No Charlie Sheen? No Charlie Sheen. It's like, why not just put Charlie Sheen in there? Tiger's blood might actually bring about the actual Akira transformation. Well, you know, you, you know what the worst thing is? It's like if Charlie Sheen was in it, the movie would be winning. <laughs> you know, it's like it's like it's like then maybe if they said, "Oh, Charlie Sheen is playing Kanade," I'd be like, "All right, winning by winning." Charlie <laughs> Sheen can play Kanade and Tetsuo, and he'd be by winning. But you know what? That's not what we're going with. We're going with legit source material that's probably going to have a $150 million, $200 million budget. And, and the fact that there's not one, one Asian actor or actress involved is, is, is fucking sad, dude. Sad. Ugh. I'm still wrapping my head around Bad Santa 2. Oh, that that that's just I told you that should be it should be titled you know Bad Santa Two Billy Bob needs a paycheck. I mean Bad Santa One wasn't that funny, and it's, I'm not saying like it wasn't a comedy, but it's like the the movie was too it got too dark and serious. Well, you know what it is. It had to. This is what I've realized, and I watched the unrated version, which is a lot more hysterical. Especially when he's, you know, when he's fucking the fat lady in the in the dressing room. But besides that, the problem with Hollywood is that you can't just have a movie about something awful. There always has to be some sort of a message. There always has to be the feel good moment. 
why can't shit just be bad? You know, why can't, why can't, why does every movie need some sort of a happy ending? It's, it's like when, when I heard about Dinner with Schmucks, the original concept was the fact that the people were retarded. And, you know, of course, you don't want to make fun of people that are, you know, disabled, blah, blah, blah. I, I can understand that. But in, in going that route and, and making it, you know, schmucks, the, the audience you thought you were going to get, you didn't get because you, you had to be safe. And, you know, it's a poor example to use, but when you look at something like Bad Santa, the title says it all. Bad Santa. He's a scumbag. He shouldn't give a fuck about Thurman Merman. He shouldn't give a damn about anybody, period. He should be all about getting wasted and telling the store manager to go fuck himself and beating and abusing his dwarf. That's really it. But, you know, everything has to have a message and has to come full circle. Up until the whole full circle, oh, I love this little fat kid story part of the movie, it was fucking great. It was great. Him just showing up drunk, talking shit. I was fantastic. That and the overpussification of fucking Hollywood. Like, they wonder why fucking, um, what do you call it? Battle LA dropped a three. Because you got a fucking war movie with nobody, there's no gore. It's like you lost, you lost your core audience right there. It's like what made everybody run out and see The Expendables is making people not run out and see Battle L.A. Exactly. You know, you, you don't have the hardcore violence gore. Yep. in the type of movie that should have it. It's like, it's like making Saving Private Ryan and nobody getting killed. It's like, it's like are you fucking sick? It's like Braveheart and no, and no wars being shown, just talking for three hours, you know, they, they lose sight of certain things. It's like what we've always talked about with Wolverine and his character, and even with the Punisher to an extent, that Hollywood's afraid of getting its hands dirty with regards to certain subject matter. Quite honestly, I actually can reference a movie that came out recently, The King's Speech, which had come out with an R rating um, due to some, you know, some, some coarse language, and now... They're removing that language and re-releasing the movie in PG-13. Ugh. You know, and, 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 it, and I understand why, because they want to get the younger demographic to see it, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the movie was built with that dialogue in the movie. Another great example is Daredevil. Daredevil is by, by far considered to be complete horseshit. But, if you watch the director's cut, they tell the story a little bit differently, and the focus isn't so much on the blind guy and the Greek girl fighting on fucking seesaws in Central Park. That's the problem. The problem is that they don't want to embrace the, the, the violence of society and, and the fact that there's so many terrible things that need to be seen. You can show a tsunami washing away a family on CNN, but, you know, don't say cunt. Don't say bitch. Don't show a little girl getting beat up and kick ass. Oh, we can't show that. How about this? In, in, the, in the film, Your Highness, which I just read it off. 
Well, yeah, but I'm just saying in terms of just even promotional material. In the movie Your Highness, there's two cuts. In the Red Band trailer, Natalie Portman is going swimming, and she has a thong on. In the, in the Green Band trailer, she's wearing a bikini bottom. You see what I'm saying? Like little subtle things like that. It's like, what is, what is that going to change? It's going to change, obviously, the, the same shit that made, made that horrible Wonder Woman costume. Yeah, well, the, well, the Wonder Woman costume is, I can understand you don't want to go with star-spangled underwear. That's great. But, you know, we can just put her tits in her throat with, with, with her bustier. Ah, nobody will mind. Boobs are PC. We can get away with boobs. That, that's the way it works. I mean, the Wonder Woman costume uh, situation is, is something that we can dedicate an hour to on its own. But the, the simple thing was, Oh, let's make it fresh. Like I told you what well, we spoke off air. It's Wonder Woman McBeal. That's all it is. It's like it'll probably now it it'll probably get six TV, episodes. TV gets away with more shit than movies do. Yep. TV does get away with a lot more shit. If you watch TNA, they say asshole a lot on air. Yeah, that's just freaking 2001 WWE. Yeah, but, but the fact is that you're saying, you know, you you can skirt so many issues, but, you know, a film like The King's Speech, you're going to edit and re-release in PG-13, you know, just because you want more money. It's a sad state of affairs, my friend. Uh, I never understand that shit. It's like... Going back to the the whole MMA in New York thing, I, 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 told, I was telling you earlier, I saw some shit where a New York representative was like, the reason why we don't section MMA in New York is we don't want to promote violence. We're trying to reduce violence. But you have boxing in New York. Yep, you have boxing in New York. You can You can watch kickboxing in New York and boxing. Not only that, but you want to, you want to reduce violence, how about not cutting the police department and and letting people get shot in the hood? How about that? How about we start there? How about not cutting, you know, the fire department so when I turn on the TV, I don't have to see somebody's house getting burned down because a firehouse down the block got, got closed. How about that? How about not adding, how about cutting funding to the Administration for Children's Services and not having it staffed appropriately and children getting killed because of being in abusive homes and them falling through the cracks? Oh, yeah, but, you know, we don't want to promote violence. No, we want to promote what goes in our fucking pockets. That's the problem. That, that, that's all it is. It's all about promoting what goes in people's pockets. And I can, you know, I, I can backtrack and, and talk about the, you know, MMA sanctioning in New York, but, you know, like I said in speaking to R.J. Clifford, and, and he said it himself, it's, it's almost to the point where it's, like, it's, it's about as annoying as a pimple on your ass because it's the politicians being uneducated, and in regards to Hollywood, it's all about getting, you know, the mommy-daddy generation, you know, the oh-my-God-we're-offended generation, you know, because – you say fart on TV and you get offended. You know, Tracy, Tracy Morgan said it best when, he, when they were talking about 
you know, homosexual humor and making fun of gays. Tracy Morgan, the the, the best line of, of of his career in my eyes was that if you can take a dick, you can take a joke. Period. Wow. And, and you know what? It's the same thing with with all this PC bullshit with all these movies. Oh, we don't want to do that. We got to think of the children. Oh, you got to think of the children. Okay. But, you know, you got chat roulette and nobody's watching your, your, your son or your daughter looking at cockpits. C- come on, man. You know, we, 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 we can't police ourselves, but we're quick to police everything else that doesn't have something to defend it. That's the worst part. You know, we attack video games. We attack mixed martial arts. We attack movie characters and representations of certain films that should be done a certain way because we get offended. And because there's no voices to champion those causes, that's the that's the real disheartening thing. Even though it's backtracked, I'm gonna say one last thing on what I think of why MMA is not being sanctioned in New York, other than the whole money issue. It's sure. because you have the violence of boxing, and you have individuals who have the charisma and potential to imprint on children of wrestlers. This is true, but you know what it is? They, 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 there's been rumors that, you know, boxing and, you know, even, even pro wrestling have kind of thrown money under the table to keep MMA from being sanctioned in, in, you know, in New York and in certain venues just because of the impact financially. But you also have to look at the fact that we idolize, you know, children idolize football players, basketball players, you know, they, idol, they idolize guys, you know, they don't idolize the teacher that teaches, that, you know, keeps them on the straight and narrow. Very few do. They idolize, you know, Michael Vick, which is which not even to, to crucify Michael Vick because the man did what he did, he did his time, let's move on. But how many kids didn't want to be like Michael Vick or Michael Jordan or Plaxico Burris or Kobe Bryant? Oh, yeah, I want to be like Kobe Bryant. Does that involve bending a white woman over in a hotel room and poking her in a cornhole? Probably. Sure. You know, that's what I, yeah, that's what I want my kid to aspire to be. You know, did it involve Plaxico Burris? Yeah, let me go to a, a club with a gun in my sweatpants and shoot myself in the leg. Yeah, that's great. I want my kid doing that. Get the fuck out of here. You know, it's like if, if that's the, the, the rationale that they're using, they're stupid. You know, you take a guy, take a guy like John Jones, and, and again, backtracking, you take a guy like John Jones. Uh, well-spoken, African-American athlete. He goes out there. Sure, he punches people in the face, but he always tries to have a positive message. And, and that's that's the thing that they don't see. They don't see guys like John Jones. They don't see guys like Randy Couture. They don't see guys that are out there preaching the values of, of, of sportsmanship and, 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 and sportsmanlike conduct. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, you know, people get hit after the bell, you know, Bailey punches Koscheck in the face, blah, blah, blah. You know, Chael Sonnen fucking cons people out of real estate money. But you know what? That's a, that's a drop in the bucket compared to the scumbaggery that happens in the NFL, the NBA, MLB. Hell, MLB, Alex Rodriguez got bagged doing steroids, didn't get anything taken away from him for it because of the statute of limitations, and yet... He's still, you know, one of the faces of Major League Baseball. 
kids still love their A-Rod jerseys and their A-Rod T-shirts. You know, the, the Silva, Ben Roethlisberger. Ben Roethlisberger, you know, pounded out some chick, allegedly. I got to use allegedly. I don't want to get sued. But, again, same thing. It's, it, it's, the, it's the rationale of the American public that it's easy to attack things that they know nothing about. You know, oh, don't, don't, you know, don't, don't shit on the precious NFL. Oh, don't, don't attack Major League Baseball, America's pastime. America's pastime is full of womanizers, steroid users, druggies, drug addicts, gamblers, spouses, you know, murderers, you know, spouses, guys that beat the shit out of their wives. Give me a fucking break. Joe DiMaggio, as well-revered as he was, beat the fuck out of Marilyn Monroe. America needs to wake the fuck up. And stop being, you know, stop being, we got to stop being pussies for the shit we don't need to be pussies about. Period. That was very liberating. <laughs> <laughs> um, but before I let you go, I actually, I'm glad you also called because I wanted to run this by you. And, you know, given the fact that you follow this network closely, you'd be able to give us a little bit of insight. Uh, this particular bit of news involves The Hub, and I'll read you the news brief. Nine new series were announced today for The Hub, which is the new cable channel created by Hasbro and Discovery. One is the latest installment of the ever-expanding Transformers universe. Transformers Prime is getting a spinoff called Rescue Bots. The synopsis released by The Hub is the following. A group of Autobots too young to protect humanity alongside Optimus Prime and his team are partnered with a close-knit human family of first responders. Together they learn teamwork and heroism alongside their new friends. However, the successful show G.I. Joe Renegades is not on the list of shows for the 2011-2012 season. Mark Kern, Senior Vice President of The Hub, told IGN the following. We are, we're very pleased with the performance of G.I. Joe Renegades on The Hub. The series will go on hiatus at the end of Season 1, while the second installment of the G.I. Joe movie franchise is being produced. So Hasbro and Hasbro Studios can ensure the creative and storyline continuity that fans of the films and the series expect. We'll have original episodes into the summer, and we envision resuming new animation following the movie. What are your thoughts? On the first show, it's like you're making a spinoff of, of a show. And I'm going to tell you, I like Transformers Prime because at least, you know, it's one of the few shows that sticks to the source material somewhat. But it's a boring fucking show. You have <laughs> giant robots. And it's like your first few episodes, Megatron's sitting on a fucking operating table with a hole in his chest for like, the whole season. The show is boring as hell. There's been maybe like one good episode. The last episode, they had um, Optimus and, and Bumblebee fighting characters who should be from the Stentacons, but they're not. So no chance of seeing Menasaur or any combining Transformers. And the show really is fucking dull. Well, you know, like, I've been watching it. I've been watching it too on DVR, not not to cut you off. I've um, and I find the pacing to be remarkably fucking formulaic. It's like Dragon Ball Z on the Cartoon Network. Let's talk for nine episodes and fight for two minutes. 
That's how I see it. They they had an episode where Optimus Prime and RC were about to die from the cold. I'm like, really? Yeah, I saw that. I did see that. Yes, indeed. It was like, these motherfuckers can survive out in space, but they're going <laughs> to die in the in the Arctic. <laughs> Newsflash is colder in space. I saw that, and there was there was such a huge amount of uncomfortableness on my part, because I'm like, really? That's what they're going with? They're going to die in the, in, in the Arctic while, while, while the other Autobots are fighting fucking robotic termites? Give me a break. And I'm like, they're getting rid of G.I. Joe Renegade, which is a very not boring show. It's actually a very well-written show. I'm like, they not only introduced, but they explained how, like, Cobra got the Crimson Twins, Major Blood, Storm Shadow, a shitload of characters. They're like, they, they gave them background. Like, they didn't just say, okay, these guys are in Cobra. They explained why. Yeah, that, I've seen some of those. The Storm Shadow episode being one of my favorites. Like, they, the last episode they showed, freaking... You have Tomax and Zaymar running a cult where they're, like, brainwashing people, rich people, and giving them their money. They basically stole all of Cobra Commander's money. And that's the reason why they work for Cobra now, because... That motherfucker was cashing a check out of their ass. There you go. But you know what it is? I can understand why they're doing it because they want to keep continuity with the second one. But between you know between us, how much did anybody give a shit about the GI Joe live action movie anyway? Like GI exactly. Joe's a household GI Joe's a household name without that stupid movie. And the the. Actually, that wasn't the last episode. The last episode was when they not introduced but brought back Zartan and explained, one, why his part of his face is black because he got burned, and other, how he can freaking camouflage himself. Cobra Commander was looking for a, a freaking camouflage suit so he could walk around in public without people seeing his real face, and Zartan got his hands on it first, and it imprints to the first person who uses it. There you go. See, that's that's all that's all great that's all great in depth storytelling. But you know, given the fact that you have a network being ran by a toy company, you know that the big motivator is cash. And in terms of doing this Transformers Rescue Bot, this is just their way of selling of selling Fisher Price Transformers to young kids. Transformers Rescue Bot, the fucking protector bot. See, With I knew you would know. They won't even transform into the fence See, I figured you would know. <laughs> you have to own them. There you go. Well, you, you know what it is? I, like, like I said, the hub is looking at it from a cash-in standpoint. Well, yeah, the hub does market to children, so they don't care about quality. Nope, they That's don't. Me. Let's make this superhero squad version of Transformers. That's that's exactly right. But you know what it is? That superhero squad version of Transformers is probably one that's going to generate them a fuckload of cash. Yeah, because it'll make a video game. Yep. 
you get a I video game, you get a couple toys, of toys. Probably have a freaking Happy Meal with fucking bobble-headed Transformers. Correct. Oh, see, see, I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad you were able to get in on that because that mm-hmm. I figured you would be able to elaborate further on on that bit of news. You got anything else to add, my friend? No, I'm just, I'm just looking forward to seeing freaking hot chicks with guns in the morning. <laughs> yes, indeed, I look forward to your sucker punch review for sure. All right, man. I'll talk to you later. You got it, brother. Thanks for calling in. Peace. Peace. All right, jumping back a little bit, as I was saying with the Total Recall casting news, uh, they are looking for leads for the roles of Lori and Melina, who, like I said, were played by Sharon Stone and Rachel Tocotin in the original film. The short list for the role of Lori thus far are Kate Bosworth, Ava Mendez, and Diane Kruger. Also, though, Ava Mendez is rumored for the role of Melina, along with Paula Patton, Jessica Biel, and Ava Green. So thus far, that is the list of leading ladies that they are looking to be alongside Colin Farrell in the Total Recall remake. In some other sequel news, Clash of the Titans 2 sequel, well, Clash of the Titans sequel, a.k.a. Clash of the Titans 2, has started filming. And they actually gave us a synopsis of what you can expect in the second film. Our returning, of course, are going to be Sam Worthington, Ray Fiennes, Liam Neeson are all going to be returning. This is the plot for the second film. A decade after his heroic defeat of the monstrous kraken, Perseus, the demigod son of Zeus, is attempting to live a quieter life as a village fisherman and the sole parent to his 10-year-old son, Helios. Meanwhile, a struggle for supremacy rages between the gods and the titans. Dangerously weakened by humanity's lack of devotion, the gods are losing control of the imprisoned titans and their ferocious leader, Kronos, father of the long-ruling brothers Zeus, Hades, and Poseidon. The triumvirate had overthrown their powerful father years ago, leaving him to rot in the gloomy abyss of Tartarus, a dungeon that lies deep within the cavernous underworld. Perseus cannot ignore his true calling when Hades, along with Zeus's godly son Ares, switch loyalty and make a deal with Kronos to capture Zeus. The Titan's strength grows stronger as Zeus's remaining godly powers are siphoned and hell is unleashed on Earth. Enlisting the help of Andromeda, Poseidon's demigod son, and fallen god Hephaestus, Perseus bravely embarks on a treacherous quest into the underworld to rescue Zeus, overthrow the Titans, and save mankind. You know, it's not a bad plot. It really isn't. It actually sounds like something that can be convincingly good. My only concern is the fact that they're going to do that whole 3D conversion process after the movie is finished, which when you see the original Clash of the Titans, you will see that that made for a piss-poor transfer when you finally got to see it. I honestly feel that if the movie is going to be meant to be shown in 3D, it should be shot in 3D and not done post-production. But who am I to judge? The film will be released in 3D and 2D worldwide. All right, we got a last bit of the movie news to wrap things up. Deadline reports that Image Comics' hit series Chew has been picked up by Showtime for a, for an, 
<coughs> excuse me, for an adaptation to the, to the TV screen. The series is about a police detective named Tony Chu who possesses the supernatural ability to gain a psychic impression of any object by eating it. Throughout the series, Chu meets other people with different food-related abilities. The pilot of Chu will be directed and executive produced by Stephen Hopkins, who's worked with Showtime before as a director of Californication and Shameless. So definitely keep an eye out for that on Showtime very soon. In another bit of sequel news, of course, I've been telling you for the last couple of episodes that there will be new, a new installment of American Pie called American Reunion. According to, the, according to whatsplaying.com, they're saying that Allison Hannigan is involved in the film, despite reports that have been saying that she was on the outs with producers. But it seems that pretty much all the other cast members from the previous movies are involved. Here's a little bit of, of plot points that I can share with you guys. The original cast is going to be returning for a 10-year reunion via Facebook invite. And while at the school, they're faced with the frightening realization that they're no longer young teenagers. One of the characters, Oz, got rich from appearing as a contestant uh, as a contestant on a reality TV show and now lives in an expensive mansion in Malibu. Stifler, career-wise and relationship-wise, isn't so good. He's pumped for some partying with the boys, and he hooks up with an overweight former hottie named Lori while back home for the reunion. Jim's neighbor, Kara, has grown up and develops a crush on him despite the fact that he's married to Michelle. Jim has become a YouTube celebrity thanks to his performance with Nadia from the first film. Oz's girlfriend, Mia, who seems to only like him for his money, joins him for the reunion. But, when, but then Oz runs into his ex, Heather, one who's with her 40-something surgeon boyfriend who tries to act younger than he is. Lastly, Finch will score with Michelle's band camp friend, Trisha, and we're guessing, of course, Stifler's mom, as usual, will be making an appearance. So that is the plot points for the American reunion. Will it be able to strike gold? Who knows? At this point, most of these guys aren't doing shit anyway. I really doubt Eugene Levy has people beating down his door with rolls. So fuck it. Why not another American pie? Will it be as good as the other ones? I highly fucking doubt it. And the last bit of news I never thought I'd be saying this is coming from Paris Hilton's website, and American Pie alumni Tara Reid has signed on for a sequel to Piranha 3D, aptly titled Piranha 3DD. Mark Saling from Glee and Tamsin Egerton from Camelot have also come aboard for the sequel. Filming has already started in Baton Rouge, and it is scheduled for a September 16th release date. Well, folks, that wraps up this week's installment of My Take Radio. Of course, i got to get a couple of plugs out of the way. First, the one being for, of course, our guest, R.J. Clifford. You can catch him on Sirius XM Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays from 1 to 3 um, Pacific time. You can also catch him on 710ESPN.com. He also writes for Fight Magazine Monthly, and you can follow him at Twitter at R.J. Clifford MMA. And, of course, RJ said that he will be back in the future, and I am looking forward to having him back to discuss all the other going-ons in, ugh, what a terrible segue, to discuss all the other shit going on in MMA. See what happens when it's 1 o'clock in the morning and you're trying to sound really professional? It sounds like shit. All right. Got to throw a couple of plugs out there to a couple of supporters and guests of the show. Brendan Schaub, of course with his victory over Merkel Crow Cop at, U, at, Crow Cop, excuse me, at UFC 128. 
You can visit his site. It's brendanshawmma.com, and you can also follow him on Twitter, at Brendan Schaub. Got to throw a shout-out to the Beantown Gamer crew, the crew at GamerFitNation.com, of course, and Dual Shockers. Michael Jai White also. You can check his site, MichaelJaiWhite.com. He will be joining us probably in April, uh, hopefully towards the end of the month. In addition to that, got to throw a shout-out to the VGN radio crew, uh, Kevin Baird, Jedi, Brian, Don Anderson when he's there, Don Cease. You can check all their schedules for their shows at VGNRadio.com. You can also listen to uh, you know, Donnie's show, Tumbling with Tumbleweed, uh, Tuesdays at 10 p.m. on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Lastly, of course, you can also listen to Cleveland Sports Radio, which is another broadcast from the VGN crew, and you can get all those schedules at VGNRadio.com. Also got to throw a shout-out to my buddy Blaine from BornStubberRadio.com, who does the very amusing commercials that you guys love so much. Of course, 411mania.com gets its well-deserved shout-out, ocremix.org, mmajunkie.com, filmdrunk.com, and, of course, the ladies from Girl Gamer and Gaming Angels. And some of our broadcast colleagues, MMA Gospel Radio, you can listen to them Wednesdays at 8.30 on blogtalkradio.com slash mmagospel, and you can also visit their site at mmagospel.com. And, of course, our content partners, as always, This Is Wrestling Podcast and MMAValor.com. You can find their content on MyFakeRadio, and you can visit their respective sites as well. You can get those links and any of the links from our previous guests in the links tab at MyFakeRadio.com. If I left anybody off, I apologize. Next week, we will be doing our WrestleMania roundtable. I will be joined by the crew from the Future Endeavors radio show from Blog Talk Radio, they will be joining me along with our newest staffer, Mist, who is going to be giving her thoughts on the upcoming WrestleMania event along with the crew from Future Endeavors. You can check those guys out, blogtalkradio.com, and I believe it's slash Future Endeavors Radio or Future Endeavors, but I will make sure to add that on the links tab as well. And, of course, after that, we are going to be joined by Bloodstain Lane, Finally, we got a reschedule. That's going to be the first week of April. The second week of April, Kung Lee will be joining us, uh, strike force fighter, actor. He'll be joining us as well. Michael Jai White will also be joining us in April, and a couple of other guests that we've got in the works. So definitely keep an eye out on MyTakeRadio.com or on our Facebook fan page and, of course, on my Twitter feed. That's it, folks. My Take Radio, episode 84 for Thursday, March 24th, 2011, is in the books. I cannot close this show out without wishing a happy anniversary to my fiance Andrea. We made 11 years effective today, March 25th. So definitely want to say thanks to her for always supporting me and for supporting My Take Radio. And that's my mushy shout-out for that. Contact information. If you want to email me with questions, concerns, or to be a guest on My Take Radio, you can hit me up on mtrhost at mytakeradio.com or mtrhost at gmail.com. If you're on Twitter, you can follow my personal account. It's akuma25, A-K-U-M-A, the number 25. If you want to follow the show account, it's My Take Radio, altogether one word. If you're in the wastelands of MySpace, you can hit up myspace.com slash mytakeradio and, of course, our Facebook fan page, facebook.com slash MyTakeRadio. And last but not least, our forums, 
catch the rest of the crew in there, Mist, Slick, De Silva, Bronx, Josh, myself, and the rest of the MTR listeners and staff members in the MyTake Radio forums. It's mytakeradio.com slash forums. That's it, folks. MyTake Radio episode 84 is in the bag. Thank you guys for listening. Thanks to RJ Clifford again for popping in and giving us some great insight into mixed martial arts. And I will catch you guys next week. Peace. Taking us out this week will be the Ryu stage, Satsui no Koto from Zircon and Josh Morse. You can get that from ocremix.org or from the OC Remix Heroes and Villains official soundtrack. Peace. (laughs) 